this whole revolution is the beginning of the end for the status quo of what Lebanon's been forever. The new generation has arrived. Our generation is here and the younger. I think we're the tail end of the change. I think it's a unity between the children up until people who are about 40 to the 50s, really. And it starts to really diminish as you get older in the ranks. But this generation of Lebanese, our time has come of highly educated, you know, the warlords and the mongers and the people who even you, sadly, have become very familiar with and our country has been dictated by, you know, a lot of them never went to school, never went to university. Their thinking is rooted in absolute stupidity. It doesn't excuse it. It's just the explanation. In fact, there is no excuse to not try to better yourself. But the bottom line is our generation has arrived. Yeah. And the way our generation does stuff is much different than other generations. My name is Nimmer, and I am known as being a stand-up comedian. All the previous protests that have happened, whether it was, uh, you know, Tilatri Hitkon or anything before, was always limited in scope. Yeah. It wasn't able to draw in so many. We, we never had people from Tripoli driving down to Beirut or Beirut going to Tripoli or right. whatever. Yeah. We never had ingenuity in the approach of the, tri- of the, of the protest. It was always like, okay, we go to Sahti Shahda, we start screaming, they come out, we start hitting. It was always like a one-sided thing. Right. Here we had, you know, DJs, like that guy DJ Mahdi and in, in, DJ Thawra, as he became known in, in Tripoli, in the evening, or we had the women separating the army from the stuff in solidarity, or we had, you know, the Tanajir, or we had yeah. um, even the violent protests. Like we had so many different approaches mm-hmm. and so many, and it was a beautiful amalgamation of approaches and ideas. And I think that's what's beautiful about this generation. We're all like, let's give this a shot, see how it goes. And, and then we go behind it. And I think that it was the fact that it all started out and continues to be so peaceful that really also makes it starkly different to any revolution, not only in Lebanon, but in the entire region. You described the Ustink movement. Yes, a great movement. And, and even going back earlier, so the March 2005 protests. Yes, of course. Right. So we've and seen the, uh, yeah. the, uh, the Arbatash was, I mean, I walked in those protests. Right, right. And when that happened, um, that, was, that was the closest thing, I think, to now mm, mm. that we had. Okay. But then the reality came to kick us in the ass where they're like, okay, mm, we'll just assassinate everyone. Right. Which is a reality. Yeah. I think the lessons we learned from that forced us into some very powerful stances now, mm. keeping it a leaderless movement, right. protecting right. people who could emerge, yeah. ensuring that we uh, make sure that we don't identify leaders without giving them the strength to be untouchable. Right. Uh, political maneuvering from our part as a generation, we no longer are subject to the maneuvering of the elite. Yes. We too can maneuver the elite into difficult places. Absolutely. I give full credit to the revolution for the maneuvering that it's done to screw over the political elite that have been trying to screw over Lebanon. Lebanon's been united since about 2010. And when I say it's been united, I've been saying this and I've been ringing the bell. Killon, yani killon. All of these statements are things I've been saying since 1999. Oh, so you see this as a gradual evolution. I see this as people are united. When people say the Lebanese aren't united, I say they are so united in one specific thing that everybody overlooks. Mm. We all eat shit equally. (laughs) What's been interesting from the days of the civil war is Mm. there's always been an imbalance. 
Yeah. Uh, back in the Civil War, you know, okay, the Maronite Christians are in control. So then the Palestinians come in and they draw sympathy from certain Muslim groups. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. there's yeah. always an imbalance, right? In Iraq, uh, the ISIS comes in. You know, the Shiite Muslims are a minority. The Sunni Muslims are over there. They say, look what they're doing to you. Help us out. They kind of do a repeat of what happened in the Lebanese Civil War. Let us take your money from the banks and the weapons, and we will bring you back to power. And there's an imbalance to exploit. Mm. In Lebanon, mm. Al-Qaeda couldn't do it. ISIS couldn't do it. And nobody could do it because there is no imbalance to exploit. Whether you're Sunni, Shiite, a Maronite, or Roman Catholic, which I would say are the four main religious sects, or Druze, you're eating shit equally. We all have bad internet. We all don't have electricity. We all don't have good roads. And I think what we're all trying to ask for is very reasonable, those things. This is what's interesting about Lebanon. Even if you're rich, you still need a generator. You still need to have UPS batteries hooked up in your house if you want to do anything productive. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people are trying to call this revolution a divide between the ultra wealthy and the very poor. There are some very wealthy people Mm-hmm. That, are, that are very much, I mean, there are a lot of great business owners in Lebanon yeah. that provide jobs and do everything and feel with the people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know all of them. I know some of them. Yeah. But they suffer because they too are sick and tired because their potential is capped as well. What people need to understand is that in Lebanon, whether you're wealthy or poor, if you took off the handicaps that are put on the Lebanese people, yeah. we would all, all be elevated. We would be wealthier and we would all be wealthier. The poor would, we've had a complete destruction of the middle class Mm. in our country. As a poor man myself who rose to the middle class, I feel very lonely right now. Mm. There isn't a middle class in Lebanon. There's a a deepening divide. What we need to understand is that divide is being exploited. It's no longer religion that, because religion doesn't work anymore to exploit and divide us. It's now this divide that's being exploited to try to distance ourselves from one another. And we can't allow that. One person with a gun is equal to a thousand peaceful protesters. So you need to just buy off 200 to 300 thugs and you're good to go. 200 to 300 thugs are very easy to buy. It doesn't take that much money. And um, there isn't even enough money to buy those 200 to 300 thugs. So I think people are gradually starting to see that they were just two to 300 thugs. And that's what's been holding it. And I think people are furious right now that they've allowed themselves to be exploited so much by two to 300 thugs. And then there's social networking, which is a huge sure. difference. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of great people who love Lebanon dearly, like yourself, myself, yeah. who happen to have a lot of privilege yes. and have felt that this privilege doesn't allow them to escape Lebanon, yeah. but empowers them to help Lebanon. And right. I, I know the word privilege is very interesting. A lot of people have called me privileged like it's an insult. And I say, no, I am very privileged. Did I work to get everything that I have? Very hard. Yeah. Uh, did I really put my health as a sacrifice to do, was I given anything? Absolutely not. But the fact of the matter is, I reached a position of privilege through a very fort- series of fortunate events and hard work. Whereas other people maybe put in just as much work as I did, but they didn't get to the point of privilege. The only thing that separates the two of us is I now feel I have a duty to use my privilege right. to make sure that nobody has to suffer not being able to be privileged like me because of handicaps. I think the only goal of Lebanon right now, and I think what's so fair about the revolution is we're asking for a level playing field. All the revolution has said from day one is a level playing field. 
Why do you continue to suppress the Lebanese people's potential simply so you can empower a few fucking dicks? That is the way you can summarize all of it. Crass language, yes, but sometimes crass language really does us a service yeah. by seriously summarizing that really are the people that we're fighting politically are just a bunch of fucking dicks. We're not talking about an ideological uh, competition between you know, real uh, ideas, like real ideas. And we're talking, we're talking about one yeah. piece of shits way of thuggery versus another piece of shits yeah. way of thuggery. We're not talking about, you know, Oh, but this economic plan, I believe we should invest in the artificial intelligence and blockchain technology. And somebody else is like, no, we should f stay in the old ways and strengthen the Lebanese pound. No, it's just like, Hey, if you, if you hook me up in power, I'll take care of you guys. And the other guys I'll fuck them over for you. This is not going to work anymore. Yeah. Lebanon and the Lebanese people understand that nobody cares about us. Yeah. And we've always been a government of foreign interests. And for the first time, the Lebanese people are saying, how about we give uh, a Lebanese interest yeah. government a spin and see what happens? So I'm going to get back to this because there's a lot to discuss on what you're doing personally and your work and yes, your, your contributions to the last few months. I think a lot of us have seen it. Yes. And uh, it's, it's, been, it's been very... I think very important for both Lebanese at home and in the diaspora. Yes, so, I focus a lot on the diaspora. Because right. that's another thing, by the way. Yeah. Our diaspora has gotten so large and become so connected through social networks with people in Lebanon. Absolutely. That's why we also have this now. There's right. no more confusion. Yeah. You can't get the message out wrong. Propaganda sure. doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Because we have social media influencers Absolutely. who picked up the gauntlet as well to make sure that the diaspora is well in informed. Millions of people are tuned in. Millions of people. And they're fucking furious. Let's, let's get back. Furious. Yeah, we'll get back to that because that's a very important subject. Yes. But I'm curious about you. Yeah. And I know I know tidbits from yourself and from just having from observed my your, shows and stuff. Your shows and <laughs> like all good comedy, some of it is real truth and some of it is exaggerated. But I, I yes, sense sir, that, of course. Yeah, that there's a there are kernels of truth in what you. There's share. a lot more truth than there is fiction in my shows. Well, I, a I, lot of people think I make up a lot of the stories. Yeah. What I always do is the stories are all real. Yes. Uh, a lot of times I'll dumb down the punchlines uh -huh. to make them funny because if I were to tell you exactly what happened, it would, there's nothing funny about it. Right. <laughs> but I, what I like to do is I like to make the story funny so that we yeah. can listen to the lessons learned. Well, I'm going to... Instead of to get fixated on the drama. I'd like to probe this because... Probe away. I will probe as, as deep <laughs> as possible. I know I'm in good company when Probe it me, my friend! <laughs> Let's start with the uh, the hardest place to probe. <laughs> Childhood. <laughs> oh my god, that's too far. Let us start with the most socially unacceptable probe. Children. Children. No, okay, yes. So I, I know that you <laughs> guys, I'm a com for everybody listening, I'm a comedian. So I am always constantly holding myself back from making inappropriate jokes. So I just want to apologize for anybody who we'll might do think some, uh, this that. isn't a reflection on this podcast, it's a reflection sure. of my stupidity. Please proceed. Parental advisory. Yes, parental yeah. advisory. I know that you spent early, early years of your childhood in Lebanon during the Civil War. I know that you're born there. I was born there. Yeah. But in all honesty, I don't remember. I mean, I left when I was like a year and a half, two years old. So you're two But I felt the effects of it. I, I know the darkness of it. Right. And, and you moved to California in the mid-80s. Yes, sir. In 84, 5, something like that. Okay, so... And I, I was mean, back in 92, 93. Right. So the, the early formative years are 
American yes, and California. Proudly, amazingly American, yes. And San Diego. Yes, sir. So, so there's a... I, I think we have a shared story, except it's not California. I was born in Texas. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. But no, I'm, the, kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm the, kidding. The, just, the, just screwing around with my the, Texas the, people the, out the there. San, the San Diego of Texas, Austin. That is very... <laughs> yes. <laughs> minus, it's San Diego minus the beach. Minus the beach. And I uh, spent a few years in the D.C. area, in Virginia. Yes, sir. But then just after the Civil War, moved back to Lebanon. Mm-hmm. We would make trips to Lebanon during the war. Mm-hmm. We used to go through Syria. Mm-hmm. My family's originally from Tripoli, so we would go, actually, we'd fly into Damascus and then take the long taxi ride. Oh, wow. All the way to Latakia and then cross into Tripoli. Wow, okay. And this was maybe a 10-hour trip or, or longer. Uh, so my, I mean, my experiences with Lebanon as a child were Civil War years. Mm-hmm. Of course, Tripoli, the Civil War, was not as difficult as Beirut. Yes, not, right? definitely. Yes. And the Civil War had more or less more or less ended by the late 80s That's in Tripoli. True. Maybe not on healthy terms. No, no, no. But, but it, it had, had yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the mass murdering had stopped. Yes. And similar to your kind of uh, trajectory, ended up spending my adolescence in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I am not a comedian. I've mm-hmm. never, I, I have a deep appreciation for comedy. Mm-hmm. And stand-up comedy in particular. I'm glad you do. But, but I don't know where it comes from exactly. I, don't, I know for sure it doesn't come from Lebanon. Because my adolescent years were not appreciating stand-up comedy. It was appreciating SL Shi. What a great show. Yeah. But that's not... That the pinnacle is, of Lebanese comedy. Pin- absolutely. The yeah. best that we ever had it. Sure. But that's not, that's not traditional stand-up. That's no, no, just no. Sketch yeah, no, comedy. that's sketch comedy. Yeah. And that's something, I mean, we all know in various forms. Yes. That's been around for hundreds. I mean, from Ziad al-Rahbani and before that, Akhwat sure. Shanai and all that stuff. Yeah, and, and maybe the Americans still do it best. Sketch comedy? Yeah, maybe they're, I mean, I... They arguably, yeah. arguably, but I mean, but it it's true. because of the budgets and it the people is, involved and absolutely. the armies of writers. If you right. were to distill all of that to what Lebanon has had to work with, I think, honestly, co- comedically, yeah. our country has kicked some serious ass in comedy. Absolutely. But stand-up. I yes. know it's not from my Lebanese. No, years. no, stand up started with me in the Middle East. It was. It started for you in the Middle East. With me, like it. Yeah. There wasn't. It was before Nimr. There was no stand up. So this is why I'm very curious. Yeah. I mean, can you? Is anything about childhood in California, or is that? Not yeah, I fell in love with stand up when I was like four, five years old. Four. In in ever since I was about four or five, I would tell everyone when I grow up, I'm either going to be a stand up comedian or a ninja turtle. <laughs> and I think at heart, I maintained the Ninja Turtle, Ninja Turtle. and publicly as a career-wise, I've kept a stand-up. And I meant it because what I remember from my childhood is darkness. My parents were unhappy. Mm. Uh, and I think a lot of people listening uh, who are older can actually very ident- much identify with the fact that America is an amazing place. Mm. I am such a proud American. Mm. Um, and my parents love America. But when you're forced to go to a place as opposed to choose to go to a place, there's right. a stark difference right. on your attitude towards it. Yeah. They didn't leave Lebanon because they were like, hey, let's go give America a shot. Got nice beaches. Uh, <laughs> they left Lebanon because they were terrified for our futures. Right. Uh, and there's a big difference when, you're, when you have family here. There's civil war going on. You don't yes. have social networking to know exactly what's going on. Right. There's a lot of misinformation. And back then, I mean, getting a call. Just getting a call and then the... As you waited for it to... Eventually, after 20 minutes of doing... For it to hopefully go... 
Exactly. Hopefully. Because yes. you could be on the phone for 20 minutes of do-do-do-do-do-do, and then it's just a – there's a lot of people who are like, what's Nimmer saying right now? You don't even know this. You used to dial – when I came back to Lebanon in the 90s, up until the mid-90s, yes. you would dial a number. That's true. First, you'd open the line and wait for the line to come. That is true. You'd open the line. You'd wait for the line to come. I'm talking about till 95, 96. I used to remember the word central. Central. Yeah. And that, I mean, that yeah. is something you... And you used to hear the conversations of your neighbors Absolutely. all the time. Yeah. I lived all of that. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, so, so in a sense, I mean, the absurdity of being in California, yet... Well, when, I, when we went to California, it yeah. was just, I don't remember my parents happy. Right. But when I was like four or five years old, this is my earliest happy memory. Hmm. This is this is truth. I hear my parents laughing and I hadn't heard them laughing. Do you understand? Like I don't have yes. a memory of my parents laughing yes. pre this memory. Yes. And I go to their room and it's not laughing, it's hysterics. And my parents were watching stand-up. My uh -huh. dad was experiencing stand-up comedy for the first time. Wow. My mother, who had spent some of her years in London growing up because war displaced so many of us, had been like exposed to it. Yes. And they're just laughing. And I jump on the bed with them yeah. and I start laughing with them. I have no idea what the hell's going on. Obviously, I'm not understanding. Sure. But yeah. I just want to be a part of this energy. Right. My father and my mother start on HBO mm. taping on VHS all of these uh, stand-up comedy. Like there was a Dana Carvey Presents kind of thing where he's hosting. And I would these sit. old special. I'm talking about old where he would yeah, bring yeah. up multiple comedians. Yes, and I would yes. sit and watch them. Right. And it wasn't until I was like five years old or so that Dana Carvey had a specific set that he did about President George Bush Sr. going to Japan and throwing up on the Japanese <laughs> yes. president, which is right. something that this happened. Is true, yeah. And he, he himself would impersonate George Bush. He Dana was an Carvey. incredible. Yeah, yeah. Dana Carvey had like yeah. the best George Bush impression. Absolutely. And he would do the thing like, I'm looking at bar there. Like it was like this whole thing and I'm not going to do it. Uh, uh, and then he hurls. And then he, he, he throws up and, he, and he, he starts impersonating the Japanese yes. president going like, you going to brutal chunks? Like it was, it was for a kid, it had all these mannerisms, impressions. It was this five yes. minutes yes. that just I memorized as a child. And I would go around repeating the set yeah. to everyone and telling everyone that um, when I grow up, I'm going to be a stand-up comic or so a Ninja Turtle. That's where the love began. But it's at the age of five. Yeah, yeah, and so, it never changed. So that's very, that's interesting. That's a very vivid memory of. Yeah, you know, it, it affected me on a deep level. Like I'm, when I say like I was a kid and I said I wanted to be like, I don't know how many people can relate to this emotion, mm, but mm. The, it's I see it like I'm sitting in right there at the moment, peering in from a window, looking into my living room and seeing these scenes. So did I mean I'm. I'm Speculating here, mm -hmm. did you see your parents escaping their own pain? I saw that comedy could overcome the most desperate of things. I wasn't right. mature enough to really understand that. Right. I was mature enough to really understand I wanted to be a part of this, yes. not a part of what we don't have when this is happening. Right. I want to be a part of whatever this is. Right. And then, it, and that's why all my comedy is always geared to being like kind of uplifting and and really dealing with difficult subjects because comedy can cut through in a way that nothing else can. Yeah. And when I was young, my parents did something really incredible. Um, they used to put books. We had a library in the house, and they said, "You these books, you're not allowed to touch them. Hmm. These are for adults." They were basically philosophy, stories, novels. <laughs> and just by saying that, obviously as a kid. You go straight to the books. You want the books. Of course, yeah. So then my parents caught me uh -huh. reading a book once and they got furious. This is, I really, my parents, I'm so blessed to have them. <laughs> and they basically said, listen, if you want books, you read your own books. Hmm. And if you behave the entire week, maybe 
we'll take you to a bookstore and let a bookstore and let you pick out whatever book you want. So they're encouraging you to read in a very smart way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, and I'm a hyperactive kid, so it's very hard for me to behave. I behaved that week. Mm. They took me to a bookstore. Yeah. Said, pick out anything you want. Wow. Right. So I was like, I was like, oh my god, I get to read a book. I get to be a grown up. Yes. Okay. Yes. And you, sorry, this is still California. This is still California. So you're, and also I, people don't know this. I was actually the youngest reader in the state of California. I got a. That was the first thing I did. I read a book. I think it was called The Bernstein Bears or something. Oh wow! And I read like and a paragraph and, and in kindergarten, in pre kindergarten, so I could read the whole page wow. without any mistakes. My mom, I I remember the memory. Yes. Just like this, and I worship my mom for things like this. Of her sitting with me for you know the Lebanese mom sitting with me because of what she said about books, and and I wanted to read books, and I asked her, and she said, if you want it, I can teach you, and she sat down and I learned how to read a, a page. Wow. of a, a quote-unquote adult book. So when, when finally I go to this bookstore, yeah. um, I pick out an X-Men comic. <laughs> and my parents let me have the X-Men comic. Because what they wanted was for me to develop a love and a connection to right. reading yes. and to being excited about picking something in your hands that you mm. then read. Mm. And then we'd go and I'd pick X-Men comics and then I started picking up, because the pictures, I'm a kid, I'm seeing pictures. Of course, yeah. And then I picked up um, in one of these trips, a book for uh, an author called Bill Watterson, and the book is called Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, yeah. Of Calvin and Hobbes is one of the most infamous comic strips ever sure. about a young six-year-old boy, which was my age at the time, mm -hmm. and his friend who's a tiger. My name means tiger. Yeah, right. Calvin is the boy. Hobbes is a tiger. Yes. I saw the illustrations. I loved them. Picked up this book and started getting all the Calvin and Hobbes books, the collections. Mm -hmm. And I loved the stories. Yeah. I thought they were kids' stories. Calvin and Hobbes is very much an adult thing. Accessible to children. But Accessible it's a, to children yeah, yeah. through its drawings, sure. some of the yeah, most yeah. beautiful artwork. Yeah. And what I found fascinating and the importance of formative years. Mm. And that's why in my show, The Future Is Now, which you saw, I talk a lot about being raised in America. When we left America, we put all my books into storage. So I was about 10 years old. I came to Lebanon, uh, never read those books. Yeah. I was top of my class in English. My teacher would let me sit and read by myself. I was miles ahead of anyone mm. because of how much I used to read. Right. I, can, I have no mistakes when I write, when I speak. I know very complex words, but I can't tell you any explanation of the past participle. I don't understand any of that. Yeah. I just intrinsically understand the language. When I was 17, we brought my books out. I used to always write essays. I'd have these huge words, incredibly complicated thoughts that I would put out. And I remember like I once used the word totalitarianism <laughs> at the age in its, of what, in like, its correct context at around 11 and a half years old. Oh, wow. And I didn't even know. I knew what it meant. I knew what it was. I yeah. used it correctly. But yeah. I couldn't explain even where I had heard it. Right. 17 years old. We get the stash of books out of storage. Yes. I pick up the Calvin and Hobbes thing. It's my fondest memory. I start reading through them. Yeah. All of my diction, all of my thought processes, every philosophical thought or deep thought that I was having was in those pages. Wow. Without even understanding what I was reading, just because I kept reading the same book over and over That's and over and over again, it infected me in such a powerful way. So when I am proud to be an American, it's because I was given bookstores that I could go to and the stability of a life of a kid that doesn't have to run away from bullets but can run, away, run to a bookstore. And my parents having the stability to actually think and formulate strategies on how to form me as a human yeah. as opposed on how the hell do we escape from this situation or another. But this very, very vivid description yeah. of... Being in a tranquil environment that's yes. offering you stability, a lot of, and stability, and also access to things like 
Like books. Oh, I mean, th- things that... A any, love for reading. A love for reading and maybe uh, allowing a child to reach their potential. Yes, yeah? to be which, a child, which right, so many people in Lebanon have been robbed right. of. But at the same time, you have that, that that's, that's vivid and that's mm-hmm. there. And then you have perhaps a bit of pain at home when it comes to Le- the Lebanon that your parents yes. are still tuned Yeah, in. my dad was like super strict. He was angry a lot. It wasn't like, it wasn't all roses. Yes. You know what I'm saying? There was a lot of stress. My parents would argue a lot right. because of the stress in the environment, because of why we were there and everything going on. I mean, I know it's very young. Yes. I know that it would be unfair to ask anyone to think back to when they were five. Um, but I'm, I can surprisingly, rem- I have memories from that. Well, did you feel like your parents resented being there? And I mean that in, in a... Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so they're... Okay, yeah, so... Yeah. I felt like we were in a constant... I remember when I was maybe eight or nine years old, I actually asked my parents, why are we so angry all the yes. time? Why can't we just be happy? Right. If I'm playing with my toys, why are you playing? Why don't you do this? If I'm doing this, why are you doing that? Why are you doing this? There's so much anger. And I do remember that when I gave that statement out that I was surprised to see a very different reaction from my parents. I think it kind of was like a whip to them that they yeah. didn't realize it, it, negativity is a cancer. It is a cancer. Mm-hmm. And if you allow it to fester, it can take you over and before you know it, you, you don't realize it. And yeah. it's, it's as destructive as any war can be. I, I mean, from what you're saying, I'm thinking back to my younger years here in the States. It's a similar kind of story. It's a suburban, tranquil environment. Mm-hmm. It's fairly quiet. Mm-hmm. Public school, mm-hmm. front yard, backyard, mm-hmm. take the bus to school. Mm-hmm. Most of my peers seem to be fine mm-hmm. teachers were great mm-hmm. go home and it's a nightmare yeah but you're not sure why yeah they didn't make sense yeah why are you so fucking angry all the time absolutely but the nightmare was not i mean it you're too young to know exactly yeah. the story yeah and i didn't have the i didn't i, I mean i have vague memories of the tonight show with johnny carson yes and i remember watching it on TV with my father. I, I remember this and him laughing at something that has nothing to do with Lebanon. An escape from the darkness. From reality. Yeah, from, yeah. Yeah, their reality was, was fucking violent, man. But I'll, maybe you have the same memory, a similar memory. The joy of learning that we're moving back to Lebanon. And it wasn't my joy. It was their I, joy. Dude, their my joy. parents, my dad, he was, when we were going to Lebanon, it was like, we're going to the greatest place on earth. Exactly. This is going to be unbelievable. Yes. You're going to see Lebanon. This is nothing. America's not. And then we get to Lebanon, like, what the fuck is this? And you, First of all, I plug in my Nintendo. It doesn't work. I'm getting bars because it's a NTSC in right. Lebanon's PAL. Yes, yes, Electricity is yes. cutting all the time. Yeah. There's bullet holes in my fucking bedroom. So you went 92? You moved back? Yeah, at the end of 91, 92. End of ni- okay, so I, I'm, we settled 93. Or 93, maybe, yeah. yeah, something like that. I mean, it was a different Beirut. Oh, yeah. my God. We get to Lebanon, the airport was complete <laughs> chaos. Yeah. Men with machine guns standing at the yeah. airport, sewers running wildly all through the streets. Beirut was, there was no downtowns. It was all rats. It was disgusting. The roads were horrible. Well, that didn't change. But I mean, the, the roads were a different type of horrible. I mean, the things that we complain about now mm-hmm. are real. 
Yes. In terms of infrastructure yes. and that stuff. But it was oh my God. so much it was worse. Infinitely worse. This and is incomparable. The, the, incomparable. The, the, these electricity wires. Oh my God. The, and the billboards and the everywhere, right? Just yeah. everywhere. And then and then, you know, we were under Check, a, checkpoints. Checkpoints All under a Syrian place. dictatorship. And 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 a lot of people, you know, I never get political mm. because I genuinely believe that there was never really an era of people who were allowed to love Lebanon. We were always forced to love a tribal version of Lebanon mm. and to say, if we were in power, then Lebanon would be this way and because they're in power. So that's why I've never been able to be political. But there were certain realities that I grew up with that were in, I remember when we were in, um, when I first came back to Lebanon, we were at a beach at uh, Sporting yeah. and uh, because my cousins own it. Oh, so, uh, okay. so we go to visit my cousin. We're back in Lebanon. We're reaching out to family and I'm over there and I, and I see a guy who looks like Hafiz Lassad. Mm. As a kid, I've seen Hafiz Lassad. Sure. So as a kid, I'm like, hey, that guy looks like Hafiz Lassad. And I, I'm saying he looks like <laughs> Hafiz Lassad. And my mother grabs me, puts her hand over my mouth. Yeah. And I've never been in a situation where and she's like, don't say that. Right. You don't say that here. Yeah. These are the times that we lived in when we were under a dictatorship from a foreign power. Uh, and a lot of people might be saying, Nimr, uh, are you saying that the Syrians were bad to Lebanon? Are you saying that the Syrians... If we want to have a political discussion, I'll gladly have one. It's not political. What I'm saying is that we were under a dictatorship. Maybe it was a great dictatorship. If you're out there and you're listening, you're like, oh, the Syrians were the best thing to happen to Lebanon. That's cool. Enjoy your belief system. What I'm saying is that we were under a dictatorship. And the bottom line is, I think what's beautiful about the new Lebanon today is we can express our so, ideas. But this is what I'm curious about. You're, you're seven Which back then we couldn't. Right. I couldn't even say a guy looks like Hafiz Lesson. Absolutely. And people forget, people forget not too long ago, you still couldn't say that name yeah. without being... Without being, yeah, yeah. Very quiet. Yeah, right? unless, unless you were very powerful. Right. And, and, and very well recognized. I could say it. That's where my privilege comes right. from. You are young mm -hmm. and you're adjusting to mm -hmm. post-war Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in Beirut. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious about the, the comedy and your own sort of... Because here, let me tell you what it was. I get to Lebanon. I miss my friends back in yeah, America. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an American kid. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to get this shit. Like, what, the, what, what the fuck do you like about this place? That, that was my initial attitude when I came to Lebanon. My friends aren't there. You take a kid from California, from San Diego to San Francisco, and they're miserable. So we're going from San Diego. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? You're going because you just left your friends behind. Sure, it, so, sure. Uh, your books aren't there. Yeah. Your video games aren't there. Also, I was severely asthmatic. I had a hyperactivity and asthma, which is like the worst combination. I'd get really excited and then have an asthma attack. <laughs> and in, in America, they couldn't cure me. I was on cortisones and steroid-based medication and inhalers. I was fat as hell. I couldn't do anything. Yeah. And now I was always at home, and now I can't even do anything at home. There's no electricity. It's hot as hell all the time. So I had a severe asthma attack when I first came to Lebanon. I see. And uh, I, had like, I threw up like 13 times in the same night. So you were unhappy. I was unhappy. My health was suffering. Yeah. So then one of my dad, my dad's uncle calls him. I heard your son is having asthma attacks. You have to see this doctor, Dr. Jean Darien. You know how Lebanese people sure, are. Sure, sure. So they give him a doctor's name. His name is Jean Darien. And he's in junior. So we go, we book an appointment. We head down to this guy. He's on the fifth floor. And obviously... There's no ele elevator. There's no electricity. And you have asthma. And I have asthma. I almost died getting to the fucking doctor, <laughs> to, the doctor. to the guy's <laughs> office so he could check me out. He does some, uh, you know, he, he, to allergies. He's like, yeah. I have a method that I've invented. 
you know, and I'm going to cure your son. There we go. Sure thing. <laughs> so we get in there. He does his thing. We leave. He oh. takes his tests hmm. to see what I'm allergic to. This is yeah. what he does. Come back in a few days. We come back in a few days. He says, you have allergy to humidity and to um, uh, dust. <laughs> And to pollen and stuff like that, which basically in Lebanon, well, it's, it's humidity. Not, yeah, yeah, the third is everywhere, but yeah. humidity and dust, like that was That's, Lebanon, that was all it was about in the 90s. So he's like, I'm going to rebuild your immunity and rebuild your tolerance to these things. And I'm going to start giving you shots. They're basically shots under the skin. This is my own method. It's my own cocktail. Oh, no. We're going to do it three times a week for like six months and then two times a week for five. It's like a, it's a commitment for several years. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that first shot, I never had asthma again or oh, an asthma really? attack. And that guy is now like the head of the allergy allergist board of Europe or oh, whatever. Jean, I somehow expected the story you know, to take a bad That man turn. saved my life. Wow. Jean Didier changed my life. And if any of you know him, and I met his son at a show. Okay. And like his son to me was, I was going to cry because I finally got the ability to go outside and socialize. Yeah. And then I started, I was living in Adma. So I started going to, you know, there was Atletico. Where it was down this, like, <laughs> it was a while down. And then there was Tabarja Beach. Sure. And I'm going with people. I'm riding my bike. I'm going, yeah. I'm playing tennis. Yes. And within six, seven months, I went from, I hate this place, to Lebanon is the greatest country I've ever been in in my life because of the people. Mm-hmm. What, what's amazing about this country is when there's no electricity, no infrastructure, your bedroom is riddled with bullet holes, yeah. nothing, nothing. You can go down into the streets and meet people who define the beauty of Lebanon. And that was when I fell in love with the country and I never looked back. So it was a very, so it's a rapid. It was very rapid. A rapid, a rapid adjustment and then a very quick readjustment. Yeah. Because I immediately knew what it was like, because the whole time I was like, why are we here? Yeah. Like what the hell did my dad, we had such a good life in San Diego. Why was my dad so eager to bring me here? But, but you, okay. And my mom. But that, you know, I'm I'm still thinking about you watching Dana Carvey on TV with your parents. Yeah. Is there a moment in Lebanon where that comes back, that kind of joy, or at least a memory of... Asal Shi was that. Asal Shi. Okay. Asal Shi was the thing where every Tuesday, Yes. I think it was Monday or Tuesday. Uh, Wow. I can't remember. It was either a Monday or Tuesday. The family would sit down and watch Asal Shi. And then the next day in the Otokal on the bus, (laughs) all the kids were talking about... So Asal Shi to you was bringing back that joy... Essentially, was comedy, man. It yeah. was comedy greatness. It was the connection because they make a lot of fun of like movies, right? So let's sure, say you're yeah. you're watching a movie in English. Yes, yes. yes. Desperado yeah. <laughs> or Robin Hood Men in Tights. Right, right. Robin Hood, sorry, the original one, Men in Tights, the comedy. Uh, Robin Hood uh, with Kevin Costner. These are movies I had seen. Yeah. So even though I wasn't really understanding or the, the Arabic, Mexican soap opera. Or the Mexican yeah, yeah, soap opera, yeah. you're still seeing it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we would laugh. And laughter just brings people together. Drama doesn't bring people but together. Was this laughter you, does. Was it with your family as well? Yeah, with my parents. We sit down oh. and watch it. Yeah, okay. we were, we're a very tight group. Yeah. And we still are to this day. And my parents are the most incredible people in the world because they sacrificed everything multiple times so that I may have a future. And that's why I think right now in the Thoda, I'm sacrificing everything I can. Yeah. And a lot of people are, so we can do the same for our kids, but under less extreme circumstances. I, I just want my kids to have the option, not to have the, the to be able to be like, I want to go to America because I want to, sure, and I want to stay in Lebanon because I want to, not yeah. I have to leave because I'm going to get shot in the face. You're becoming a teenager. Yes. You're growing up quickly yes, in Lebanon. 
and you're laughing. Getting your first crush in Lebanon, getting interested crush. in girls in Lebanon. But the, the, I mean, I know that you're five, six, and you want to be a comedian. But is that still on your mind when you're a teenager? Yes. So does that two interesting things doesn't go away. No, no. Two interesting things happen. I discovered an author in Lebanon called John Grisham. Mm, Okay. And uh, not known for his comedy. No. (laughs) Uh, And John Grisham is a legal author, so all of his stories are are law based. Right. And I start reading all of his books. I'm talking when I'm like 11 or 12. It's like the the firm, the firm, the Pelican Brief, the Client, uh, Time to Kill, some of the greatest novels Mm -hmm. I've ever read, and great movies, by the way. Yeah. Um, and I want to be a lawyer. I start okay. feeling this need to be a lawyer. Still right. want to be a comedian. Yes. But I'm loving the, the you know, fighting for justice and at the same time, the argumentative process. Hmm. Um, I then read a book at the age of about 13 called Cain and Abel for Jeffrey Archer. This is the, the book I recommend, and in my opinion, arguably one of the greatest novels ever written besides Crime and Punishment for Dostoevsky. And Cain and Abel is just, I, f- I close the book and I say, I want to be in finance. And that's why I studied finance. That book kept me on track from 13 till university, an American University of Beirut. I studied finance and I minored in philosophy. And the reason that I did that is because I understood from Cain and Abel that finance and business really is the, it's the business of success. Business hmm. is about giving you the tools hmm. to succeed. Yeah. Whereas engineering or being a doctor is giving you the tools to be an engineer or a doctor. Right. And then you succeed in that path. Right, right. But business gives you the, the tools to succeed in a volatile environment mm-hmm. against all circumstances. You adapt. It teaches you to adapt, right? And, and law, Finance is yeah. the law of studying a market mm. and understanding how to function in a market that is unpredictable yeah. and to be able to react and act and mm. shift mm. and move to it. Yeah. And I always felt that as, to be a comedian which is the most unstable of careers, to be able to chart my own path, to build a brand out of myself. That's all business. 95% of everything I do is business. I spend an hour on stage, but months getting there. And you are your own. I am my own everything. I I am very lucky to have uh, a best friend and an incredible agent and representative in the Middle East, Nadir Jafal. I'm very lucky to have an incredible agent and management here in America from Adam Genovizian Mm -hmm. at ICM or the team at Avalon. Mm -hmm. And I'm very lucky, but... These are recent. Right. So up until I'm in the Middle East, there is no such thing as an agent. Nadir Jafar is the first real represents artists agent yeah. ever. And he started with me um, because usually an agent in Lebanon is somebody's brother, cousin, sister, <laughs> yeah. et cetera. Right. 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 Um, and it's very like a kind of, in many cases, corrupt so process. In a way, every path you're taking, whether mm-hmm. it's appreciation for literature mm-hmm. or studying or perhaps wanting to become a lawyer, but the lawyer finance. part, you see standup is a yeah. funny law. <laughs> because you're up on that stage for an hour and a half arguing your point. It's a performance art. It's a performance art, and yeah. you're and you're taking the uh, when you watch any movie for John Grisham or any legal film or TV show, it's always the pinnacle of that thing yes. is the closing statement, Absolutely. where they stand in front of the audience and yeah. they make it. And if they're funny and they're charming and they can get a reaction out of the audience, then they mean they got to the jury. Right. That is what stand-up comedy is. You have a captive audience, which is your jury, and you're yeah. arguing your case. <laughs> when I'm saying that love isn't the answer or the future is now, when I'm doing and I'm sitting there and I got these difficult themes that I'm approaching. Mm. If I can get the people in the crowd to laugh at something that I said a second ago that made them not laugh, then I've just convinced them. But I so like, what I loved about law wasn't yeah. exactly the law. What I loved about it was standing up for what's right and figuring out how to get your point across. But I, I like that you are committed at such a young age 
to what you want to do. Yes. Many people make, I mean, they come to terms with what they want to do yeah. too late. But or, that's because I give that credit to my parents. That's why you saw my show yesterday, The Future yeah. Is Now. Yeah. You noticed how I have a large amount of it. It's split into two parts. And the first part is about empowering our children to find out what makes them happy ASAP. And Lebanon did not do anything to distract you from that. And in, in fact, it actually... No, because my parents kept me on the course. Right, right. I owe everything to them. Mm. I have... When people say, Nimmer, you're privileged, I say yes, because I was blessed with parents, like my parents. But you don't go into sketch comedy. No. You go... You. I mean, you... Because it's not as powerful as stand-up. And you... I hope... I'm not overstating this. Mm -hmm. You create the market for stand-up comedy. No, you're not overstating this. I I started when I was 17. There, it did not exist. Not only did I start doing it first, but I built the industry. When people ask me, what does that mean? I traveled to other countries and taught other people how to produce events for my competition. (laughs) I brought in other comedians and paid them to do shows. Yeah. Yeah. I would pay comedians and set up shows where I would lose money just to ensure that people understood there's an alternative to Nimit. Because it's not an industry if Nimit is the only stand-up comedian. It's just me doing stand-up. And while some people might be like, oh, that's great, you get all the market, that's terrible because if somebody doesn't think Nimit is funny, then somebody thinks stand-up comedy isn't funny and that's criminal. You need to make Mm. sure that I don't like Nimit, but I prefer Wissam Kamal. There has to be alternatives. I don't like Nimit, but I like George Carlin. You gotta know it's out there. Right. Then you fall in love with the industry. Then when the person doesn't like me at one phase in their life, I might actually pick them up at another phase in their life. Right. Maybe my comedy has matured into something they would like. Maybe they've matured into something I would like. Or the word mature is kind of loaded. Maybe their life has changed to where I'm actually useful to them. But I'm curious, Nimmer. You're, I mean, I remember being 17 mm-hmm. and having not a clue about where I'm going in life. Mm-hmm. And I know that where I am today and where I was at 17... I can draw the line, but it's very, it's a zigzag. It's not a straight mm-hmm. line. You're 17 and you're making it a big decision. You know, dude, when I was, I'm telling you from when I was five years old and I'm 36 now, the Ninja Turtles, stand-up <laughs> comedy, reading, all of these things are still things I'm militantly in love with. Can I ask so you I've been hyper-focused since that age. I, I like that. And I, and I, cause I consider you in a way a peer in age and in perhaps this kind of shift between Lebanon and America. So I'm, I'm curious, 17, you're making a, I, I think it's a big decision. Mm-hmm. You're introducing a new type of entertainment. Yeah. Putting yourself out there, and getting it, embarrassed when you're bombing on stage in front of everybody who you spend every day with. Cause I started yeah. at AUB. So people right. would see me on stage and then I'm walking around and they're there. Sure. So you can't run away from a bad performance. And I, I mean, <laughs> of course, and at least the benefit of bombing in America is that most likely you won't see your audience. No, you're never going to see them again. And you can bomb and you can appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and you can like take it and, and then sure. and you can try the same out joke out 50 times. 100%. There, yeah. I mean, you bomb and... You bomb and then the next day people come up to you and, and tell you specifically how you can improve. Yeah, yeah. And they sit there and they go on and you already feel terrible sure, about and it. They, and they come back to the next... They come time. back to the next show and then they give you criticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Lebanese so, people always have something to say. Sure. And maybe which makes the, them great. The, the competition is cutthroat in America, at least. Yes. In, but, but there it's also difficult for other reasons. It's difficult for other reasons, but yeah. it also is was easy to be the only one there did you just did have you? no no anxiety to go and no say, no it was my calling i knew it from you, day one so this is what i meant to do and here's the thing in lebanon you grow up fast you know that yeah so a 17 year old lebanese guy is not like a 17 year old any other person i agree especially if you grew up in the 90s i i agree with this but we, i was i had by that time i had been through multiple wars 
Sure, I had sure. seen public hangings. I had seen uh, murders. There was Masjid Khana. There were all of these very incredibly... I had lost friends to an incompetent government that set up the road in the wrong way so that they died. I had had friends who had been uh, beaten to a pulp in a protest. I used to be a metalhead, so I witnessed religious extremism and friends getting their heads shaved and beaten because they worshipped Satan because they liked to track for Rage Against the Machine. Just, (laughs) you live so much. By the time I was 17, it was insane. Completely agree, and... In many ways, that's what allows Lebanese who leave Lebanon to shine. Yes, it is. They're, they're, Specifically. Yeah, they have foundation, which many people don't get. Yes, by and it's a privilege. It. Yeah, but but I'll add to that. Being a 17, 18-year-old at AUB is tough, especially yes. when you're going to try something new. Yes, you're not, yes, yes. You're not going to straight to the engineering or the business school and becoming just a, another student. I yeah. mean, you're, you're bringing entertainment yeah. value. Can you just take me back what it was like to first try stand-up and I'm I mean I'm I can only assume that there was a lot of bombing in the process that there it's was a very interesting story actually <laughs> um that I tell a lot of comics so that because they can learn from it so I used to I speak on stage the way I speak my whole life so usually it's just a natural thing on the playground mm. I'd start talking and then a crowd would naturally form around me because I kind of perform when I'm talking it's mm. just the mm. way I talk yeah. um, you're also maybe a little taller than I'm average, taller so people I'm are, enormous compared yeah. to most people in the Middle East so you come out and you're the I'm, friendly giant I'm the friendly giant <laughs> I always used to be friends with the geeks I'm a geek myself I love video games comic books I was all about that life so I was with the cool kids. In my opinion, mm-hmm. the cool kids are never the cool kids. The cool kids are the people who aren't cool. They're really cool. Yeah. The people who love books and knowledge and stuff like that, they're so much fun. So I would always be telling jokes, impersonating teachers, and it was kind of like a stand-up comedy show. It was a natural way that my prose well, that's was... that's interesting. So you, you were kind of already I doing was very it. familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I lobbied the music club in AUB to let me host the AUB Outdoors. My plan was okay. that stage time, it's yeah. three days of going up on stage constantly for hours. Right. And in between bands, as they're setting up, I can do stand-up. I can yeah. do crowd interaction. I can do sets. What was their reaction? So they were like, we need a host, and people like you, so go up and do whatever the fuck you want. So you're the host. So I'm the host. Right, you're not a stand-up comedian. No, you're but in host. my mind, I'm going with the stand-up comedian thing. That's I'm not going to sit and explain stand-up comedy to him. <laughs> I was just like, let me do comedy on stage. You know, let me make people laugh. Okay, yeah. Uh, you know, a I'll funny be the host. Yeah, instead of the host yeah. being up there and just be like, uh, we're giving away tombola, like actually doing something entertaining. Right. Interesting. So they go, sure, and they put me up the first day. You know, this is a very Lebanese version, I think, of what American stand-ups go through. It's like, let me try my material yes. here. If you don't like it, give me give me the money back. It's kind of yeah, like it's, a, it, I was like, look, I'll go up. Worst case scenario, you know I know how to talk. Exactly. So yeah. it was actually safer than an American experience because I could just stop doing jokes right. and just do the tombola You're thing. getting a service regardless. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I yeah. figured you know, I need an audience like to try this stuff exactly. out. Exactly, yeah. So I prepare about three minutes of material. Because uh, they say that's all you need to do, three minutes. And I figured I'd just, you know, get one set in yeah. up top when nobody's setting up. Right. And then when people are setting up, there's going to be distractions. So then I'll do the host thing just to get my, you know, yeah, taste for it. You know, it's all I'm thinking about for like three weeks leading up to the event. And I write this incredible set about, you know, and jokes about stuff that and I knew are about. Are you testing the material no, before? I'm no, I'm just going to do it on stage. Okay. You can't test it. Yeah. There is nowhere to test it. Right. So I get up on stage and I say one of my most popular jokes of all time for a college crowd. I open with it. And uh, I walk out on stage. I'm supposed to do only three minutes. Yeah. So I walk out on stage. I go, hey, everybody, how are you doing? You guys excited? Are you ready? You know, the common thing. How many people do we have here for maybe uh, going crazy? 
how many people do we have here from LAU? You get a good sizable amount of the crowd. Mm-hmm. And um, by the way, this was in a place called Batish Auditorium in AUB. <laughs> so there's about the first time I'm ever on stage in my life is about 300 people watching me. So I'm standing there. I know exactly what you're talking yes. about. I know exactly where you are. You know exactly. So I, I'm I, saying it so yeah. that people who've been there can actually get and a visual. You even say Batish. Batish the way you're supposed to. I used to say Bathish, <laughs> but his name is Batish, which is very gangster. So I'm on stage, and then I say, how many people do we have from LEU? You get a good amount of people clapping, and then a yeah. lot more people booing. You know, it's right. a rivalry. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very friendly boo. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm like, guys, guys, no, don't boo. Welcome to my LEU people. I'm like, we got, you know, you do realize what AUB and LEU students have in common. Both of them applied to AUB. <laughs> and the crowd goes wild. <laughs> and that's like, and it just, from that moment, they were yeah. eating out of the palm of my hand. I then go on to do my three minutes of material and it crushes. And then I turn around and I see them signaling to me to stay on stage. Turns out that there was a problem with the mixer. Okay. And they want me to kill time. So I this pres- is your first, first time on stage up. in my life. I stay on stage for what was about 40 to 45 minutes of the greatest performance of all time in the hold sense on. that it's like 45 minutes of improv that is just killing. Hold on, hold on. You, you prepared three, but you I prepared ended up, three. you produced 45? Yeah, yeah. This is, this is a very key component of my skill set that allowed stand-up comedy to thrive in the Middle East. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Because there was no ability to try material, so I needed to be able to be really good at improvising. But how did you have all that in your head? I just started going with it. I was in the oh, moment. You literally just went with it. I just it. started going with it. I, you oh. know, I'd ask somebody, you know, where are you from? Do this, some crowd interaction. They'd say something would spark an idea, okay. make fun of a class, do something about college, you know. Right. And uh, it was 45 minutes of just the crowd losing it. Wow. Then we brought up the first band. I'd come back out on stage. People would lose their minds. Yes. Kill it the second time. Bring out the next band. They weren't so good. People started chanting my name. Wow. To come out on that stage, I felt like a rock talk star. about like a ego boost, right? I mean, the ego first, boost through the roof, and it's yeah. very important that that we specify ego boost at this point. Yeah, I finish that day. I am a fucking god. <laughs> I leave. People are high fiving me. They're saying I was the best thing about that first day of the outdoors. I'm a legend. Yeah, women are talking to me, which had never happened. Like it was just. I was like, I am the man. You did it. That's it. Day two is the next day. <laughs> day one, I arrive three hours ahead of time. I've been preparing for weeks. Day sure. two, I get there just as the show is sure, about to sure, start. Sure. Have no fear. Yes. Nimmer is here. Uh-huh. I get out on stage. <laughs> three minutes, that's it. <laughs> I could do hours. I'm just going to do three minutes. Sure. I got this. And I proceed to bomb Yeah. in a way that is so spectacular. <laughs> I die a thousand deaths on that stage. Wow. I get no laughs. I get nothing. I get same, my ass kicked. Is it the same crowd? No, it's not the same crowd. I get but, off but stage. It's the same material, more or less. Same material. Interesting. I get off stage. I come back. Same shit. In fact, people are really not liking me. Wow. And it's not misreading the audience. That well, they genuinely didn't enjoy it. They, I just was not funny. Right. No, I mean, you didn't hear it. You didn't feel it. No, no, I didn't feel. There was yeah. nothing. There was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was as if I was like, is this, is this thing on? Right, right, like right. you start to have yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of. <laughs> Uh, Turns out it I is. I then kind of look into my audience and I see that they're a bit older. I'm right. doing material they can't associate with. Right. And I'm being cocky. Yeah. And uh, I slowly start to win them back. By the end of the show, they tolerate me. Yeah. And it was a big lesson to understand that stand-up, the second you think you're better than the crowd, 
is the second that you become unrelatable. Right. And stand-up is all about being relative. Like, you need to be able to be useful to the audience. Yeah. So just my, a mixture of my cockiness, of not thinking I need to understand what my crowd was, not showing up early and seeing that the people filing in were older so that I adjust my material. I learned so much in those three days. And basically, I would host every AUB Outdoors, and it was boot camp. And the last AUB Outdoors I did, there was like 5,000 people. So hold on. You, you, did three event, you did three days in a row. Yeah. The third day, was it back to sort of something... In between. In between. Yeah. It was a much more mature approach. Right. And then I started basically piggy banking concerts for bands. They would be playing at a club here. I'd go and do right. five, ten minutes here. I'd be, that was how it started. But the name recognition was AUB Outdoors. People I got a career. So when I finished from my four years in university, I had a following as a stand-up comic, right. as the funny guy. Right, right. And uh, when I went on to be a professional comic, I had a somewhat of an audience. I started using MySpace and their MySpace pages yeah. to spread the word about my show. But it's interesting. I, I mean, and I that's how I sold tickets to my first show ever. You know, I like that you chose AUB Outdoors because I don't associate that with comedy. Yeah, it's just a it's a fun. Yeah, it's a festive environment. But my but business mind associated it with an audience. Right, exactly. So, so I knew you, I could use so it. So you actually you found the right path. Yes, and you found it quickly. Yes. And that was a business decision because I figured if I, I have a captive audience, yes. if they like me, I can use them in the future. One day I'll be able to charge tickets. This is I'm going to need somebody to come buy the tickets. Yeah. Who's going to buy the ticket? People who like me. So it was all like, where can I go that has the maximum reach right. and I can form a relationship with them? They're stuck with me for four years. So if they like me on stage, they're going to see me off stage. I'm going to form a relationship yes. with them and we'll have a bond and I'll mean something to them. Yeah. And that is what you need. That's like an angel investor. You know what I'm saying? At the age of 17, you're able to see through a lot of what you'll have to deal with yes. later. And yes, I think because I knew that because my dad didn't believe in me, nobody believed in me, yeah. as they shouldn't, which I talk about in my show, The Future Is Now. <laughs> and they did a good job, my parents, of making me aware of what's going to be difficult to achieve this specific dream. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to do this to fix it and do that. And so. oh, can I ask you, though, let's say after three shows and you get... Three different reactions. It's not three shows. It's like 15 or 25 or 30 shows over each day for three days. Because you're going up in between every right. band. for, right. And the shows are like 12 hours. You know what I'm saying? Oh, so you were doing... I was hosting the whole thing. So oh, I was wow. going up between each and every band. Okay, so you had a very... Like a boot... You it really, was boot camp. Because yeah, I'd yeah. go up, I'd suck. And then I'd have to go up in front of the same crowd that I just sucked in again right. and win them over. Right. So it was like you got to... And then you'd kill it. And then next time not kill it. And then it was like up... Wow. It, was, it, was, it was exhausting. So, so you had almost like up to 20 slots. In 20 slots and, and every day for three days. So I did like 60 slots in three days. It was a unique opportunity for real. That, I, I think that is because, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think... Actually, I don't think it's easy to quickly... No, no it isn't. That's why it's boot camp. Yeah, and, and it requires a lot of belief in you from the yeah. host... And from, the, from, the, from AUB. Well, actually. yeah. If yeah. I didn't do good that first time, it would have never exactly. repeated. So, so maybe and I knew that. So there yeah. was pressure. I, I had to dig deep. Yes. And that's why I always believe that when the situation... The more impossible the situation, the better the people that come out. Right. It also speaks to that you do need some luck as well. You, you need definitely to, need luck. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. need... There were so many things that had to come together. Right. You know, yes, I created the opportunity. Yeah. Yes, I pushed for it and lobbied for it and got it. Yeah. But I mean, had I not gone to America as a kid, had my mom not recorded cassette tapes of stand-up comedy when she was in London so that when I came back to Lebanon and I had no more stand-up to draw from, I found her secret cassette stash with Woody Allen, Lenny Bruce, okay. uh, all of these people. This is actually what I'm... George Carlin. Interesting. So you, so you kept the American stand-up... Yeah. 
I mean, you knew a, it wasn't just Dana Carvey. I had the, no, you, you had, you no. Had we, by that time, we had VHS tapes of everyone from Bill right. Cosby to Dana Carvey. But you have something unique, which is you're, you're appreciating American stand-up in mm-hmm. Lebanon, and you have access to a Lebanese audience. Yeah. And, I have, and I have access to Lebanese comedy. So I'm watching Asal Shi. Exactly. And yeah. I'm seeing what Lebanese people find funny, what right. I find funny as a Lebanese person. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm listening to cassette tapes of Woody Allen doing stand-up. Yes. And I'm finding they're very similar. And before, it's just a different way of right. prose. We're going to take a small break, but before yeah. that, I'm going to leave it with a question as in the English component to your humor. Mm-hmm. And I'm very curious about this and that you were determined to do your comedy in English mm-hmm. and you succeeded. Yeah. So I want to get into this. We'll take sure. just a small break. If you're enjoying this conversation and the Bayoud Banyan podcast, please consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Donate as much as you'd like. This podcast is an entirely independent endeavor, functioning on the generosity of listeners like yourselves. Patreon is a monthly rotation fee. You can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time option. Again, any contribution is appreciated. And now, back to my conversation with Nimr Abu Nassar. The English aspect of the story, and I, I'm not saying this in a judgmental way. On no, the of contrary, course not. On the contrary, actually, yeah. I think it's more of a, I think it's, it's a positive as opposed to a negative. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to dissect it a bit. I started giving my walking tours 12 years ago mm-hmm. in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always had a large Lebanese audience. Some of them... And by the way, your walking tours are... I've seen videos and stuff of people who are on your walking. They're amazing. That is the big reason I still go back. And it's Lebanon. great that you do it in English. Right. Okay. So this is what yeah. I want to... I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts here. Uh, Lebanese show up. Yeah. Lebanese in Lebanon or abroad. Or diaspora. Yeah, diaspora. Foreigners show up. Mm-hmm. Expats living in Beirut. The whole crowd. Everybody's there. The UN mm-hmm. crowd, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. embassy crowd, and there's a Lebanese crowd too. And the my sense is that the the audience that's always asking about that is not the Lebanese crowd. Mm-hmm. It's it tends to be the foreign crowd. Mm-hmm. And I think they ask it out of there's a well-intentioned question in there. Mm-hmm. It may not come out properly. But that why don't you do it in Arabic? Yeah. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Now, I, I try to explain mm-hmm. the capabilities of a Lebanese audience, mm-hmm. which is that they don't necessarily need to hear it in Arabic to enjoy it. Yes. And I hope that this is a sentiment that is shared, mm-hmm. is that by default in Lebanon now, English is either a second language. Yeah, I mean, everybody speaks English. I mean, it's, it's Especially become... Especially with the proliferation of the internet yeah. and the Instagram culture and all right. of that stuff. And I, I blame the war, mm-hmm. the civil war, on my inabilities mm-hmm. to properly communicate in Arabic, in, in Arabic or yeah. at least in the Lebanese dialect. Yeah, yeah. I can get by, but I will never yeah. be able to perform. You don't think in Arabic. You think in English. That's the end of the story. Exactly. Yeah. And As do I. Add to that, every walking tour that I've been on in my life prior to starting mine was in English. And mm-hmm. these were in locations that are not English-speaking countries. Mm-hmm. One of them is Bosnia. Yeah. One of them is in Cyprus, another in Germany. Uh, it is the most spoken language if you discount China because of its size of population in India. Right. It is the most, well, in India they speak English. It is the most spoken language across 
the most amount of countries in the world. Right. Now. Fact. Fact. And I still do the tour in English. And I'm, I think to this day, I've, it's just a few in the mm-hmm. primarily foreigners that want to hear. They, they want it to be in Arabic for mm-hmm. their reasons. Yes. And they assume of course. this is a form of imperialism or something yes. Abs- a yes, bit, yes. A bit absurd. Uh, yeah. Stupid is the yeah. word you're thinking. It's, it's misguided. However, their heart is definitely in the right place. Exactly. So I, I, I believe that it's well-intentioned. Definitely. But, but it's very stupid. <laughs> Maybe it's both. Yeah. Well, it is both. And, and yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. How many things in history have men done <laughs> and women done that have been well-intentioned, but incredibly stupid? Right. How and many wars have been lost? Sure. That's absolutely true. Now, putting that a step further, you, you are an AUB student mm-hmm. and you're choosing AUB as your venue. Yes, sir. Yeah. You're not going to a place that would, I mean, it only makes sense to do it in English at AUB. Definitely. Right? I'm not going to go to Lebanini and do it in... Yeah, and, and you're an AUB student. Although I, I have been to Lebanini and sure, I have done it in sure. English. And to be fair, a lot of your material is a blend of Lebanese dialect and English yes, too. Yes, especially when I'm in Lebanon. Right, exactly. All that aside, you're in Lebanon mm-hmm. and you're deciding to do this in English. Yes. And it comes naturally. Yes. Was there any sort of thinking of, I want to take this beyond Lebanon and therefore it has to be in English, and this is going to be English material? Or was that sort of just not it's, part of... It's multi-layered. First mm. of all, first and foremost, yeah. I'm not funny in Arabic. That's probably the biggest reason. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm not funny as a stand-up comic in Arabic because I don't think in Arabic. I think in English. And I think in a mixture of English and Arabic. I think how I speak with Lebanese people. So my flow, if you're a rapper, you have a flow, okay? You can tell the difference between Tech Nine's flow and Method Man's flow. Okay. If you take the tonality out of their voice, you know who's rapping, right? Mm-hmm. Zach De La Rocha has a specific flow, and it identifies them, mm. right? Yeah. Flow is very important, especially yeah. in spoken word. Mm. I flow in English with a mixture of Arabic. In my mind, I'm primarily thinking in English. That's the first reason. That's interesting. So it's not it's not the wider audience. It's just that this is. I mean, you. first of all, I'm just funny in English. This is who you are? I'm yeah. not funny in Arabic. Right. And stand up is about being real. So literally, I would be fake if I started doing it in Arabic. Okay, so it's an authenticity to you. First of all, it's, it's, this is who I am. Yeah. yeah you yeah. like my comedy. You like who I am. You don't pick and choose what about me you like and don't like. Right. That's what I... I'm in English. Right. Second of all, it makes business sense. Okay. If I go and do stand-up in Arabic, yeah. I'm walking into a market that is highly saturated with people doing comedy in Arabic, whether it's in stand-up or sketch comedy, and they're doing great jobs. Right. I could maybe get 15%. If at my peak, maybe I'll get 10% to 15% of that market on any given day. Yes. Uh, we have legendary comedians like George Khabez and Naim Halewi and Adil Khan. There's so many who do an amazing job. Pierre Chamassian, all the, so many layers and different types of comedies. But I can get 100% of the English speaking market. Right. So 100% of that market, even if you argue it's not the majority, which it is, yeah. but even if you argue it isn't the majority, of that market is much bigger than 10% of an Arabic-speaking market. So it is part of the story that you did want this to resonate beyond Lebanon's or beyond the region. Now, the third thing that I wanted to say is, what is the language that's in common with everybody? Do you want to be a Lebanese, somebody who's funny to Lebanese people? Or do you want to be a Lebanese person who's important and useful to the world? And I think within every Lebanese person, within our Mm. Phoenician roots, within everything, traveling and, and discovering and the adventure and the journey yes. is very powerful. Jibran Khalil Jibran was not famous in, in Lebanon. He That's was true. famous in New York City. That's true. And he, he wrote be- in English. And he wrote in English. Yeah. He became a Lebanese, but he's 
definitely Lebanese. Yeah. John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, which is how I open up my Showtime special with him saying that. I then fade him out and continue the quote because it's a quote from Gibran Khalil Gibran that he wrote in a newspaper when he was in New York City commenting on the revolution happening in Egypt in 1930, if I'm not mistaken. Had he not traveled from Lebanon to America to commentate from America in an American newspaper on an Egyptian revolution, that quote would not have gone viral, for lack of a better word, <laughs> and been read by the speechwriter of John F. Kennedy, who then included it in his speech to create one of the greatest American moments in presidential inauguration speeches in history. We lose when we start to think of our identity as a language. Yeah. We yeah. win when we start to think of our identity as a legacy. People come and tell me, you're Lebanese, why don't you speak Arabic? In Arabic, people have told me, right. In Arabic, people have said, right. In Arabic, people have said, Does that define the Lebanese people? In English, I've been saying I have an American passport, therefore yeah. I have the privilege of travel, so I'm going to use it to carry Lebanon on my shoulders all over the world. In English, I've stood up in front of Arabic people and said, reject all political divide, embrace one another. Right. So is it the context of my words? Does my heart beat Arab? Right. Yes. Right. Do my words beat Arab? Well, let me ask you this. What language exactly do we speak well, that was when the majority of Lebanese yeah. people don't even speak Arabic? Summarizing your culture off yeah. of a language or a religion is very, very pathetic. Summarizing your culture off of a spirit is very, very empowering. Hmm. And you asked me something earlier, and I'm sure we're going to get into it later, but what is intoxicating and different about the revolution happening today is that the revolution happening today is different because it is a revolution of our spirit. We have defined for the first time what it means to be Lebanese. This is actually a very good way of summarizing how I feel whenever there is uh, that remote criticism of you should not betray your language because I think Lebanon is far more capable than that. And I think our ability to resonate with a huge audience beyond the region is our strength. It's not our weakness. The most important language you can learn today is either C++ or Python. <laughs> and that's not comedic. That's uh, not comedic. Uh, if people tell me, uh, <laughs> I'm going to teach my kid French, I'm going to teach, shut the fuck up. Teach your kid a programming language. Yeah. Stop being stupid and trying to indoctrinate yeah. your children with what was important to you. Right. Um, when it comes to language, it's in the constantly evolving human trait. Sure. So if I speak Arabic that they no longer speak, I'm more Arab now. Mm -hmm. If I speak an Arabic dialect from 300 years ago, language is the poor man's choice sure. of identity. I have seen Lebanese stand-up comedians. Who kick ass in Arabic. And not just that. I mean, and I've empowered and helped Arab comedians all across the region yeah. who I can't even benefit from their audience because they're so Arab, exactly. like Saudi Arabian comics and stuff like that. We've worked together. And I've been to smaller venues in Beirut mm -hmm. where it's purely Lebanese dialect. 100%. Pure, and it's hilarious. It's excellent. Outstanding. Yeah. So you know, Shout out to Awkward right. for and, what they do. Awkward. And, awkward are uh, an amazing job in terms of pop-ups and other like, comedians who are doing... I saw something at Ked. The, the, these, yep. These Ked guys, was doing an amazing yeah. thing as well. 
And I think it shows that you can do comedy in any language. Because it's about the message. Right. It's not about the language. And I, I would put It's that, just, I'm funny in English. Sure. And, I and put, if you don't like that, that's yeah. great because you actually have right. Wissam Kaman, you have yes. Noor Hajar, yes. you got uh, so many. There's so many. And I would put money on the table that everyone in that audience can understand both. Lebanese, of course, dude. Lebanese people yeah. speak all languages. So Are you really, kidding me? It's down to the it's down to the comedian. It's to down to the comedian into this into our heart. Right. Absolutely. One hundred percent. The language is a, is is not a thing. Yeah. It's really what you do. Yeah. So if I don't speak a word of Arabic, but I die for my country, I'm not Lebanese. Get the fuck out of here. No. So don't don't let that be a divisive thing sure. for the people listening. It's always it's not about. And when somebody brings it up, I totally understand why they're bringing it up. I totally understand that because we're clinging to yeah. find something that we can cling on to to say, I'm Lebanese. But what people are missing is the thing you cling on to to say, I'm Lebanese, isn't the yeah. language, isn't the religion, isn't you let go of that sure. to be Lebanese. To be Lebanese, you let go of everything the world identifies itself yes. with and you embrace your own concept. And of to be fair, I don't think the criticism comes from Lebanese audience. It comes from, no. usually comes from others, other It does, and, and it does come from older generation Lebanese people who are yeah. who look hear what you're saying yeah. can't find a single flaw in what you're saying it's a perfect message it's everything they should have been saying and it yeah. and it infuriates them and they get so envious yes. that they become fixated on finding one thing to bring you down to their level right. because nothing makes a hater happier yeah. than to look at you and look at the people looking at him or yes. her it's usually a him looking at them saying, why didn't you do what he did? Mm -hmm. Why did you make up all the excuses? And then he says, well, I can't actually reply to that. So instead of that, let me bring this person down to my level. Absolutely. And I actually sympathize with that. And I feel bad for people who do that because they, they don't even know it. Right. Now, I think there's a built-in tolerance to many things that other parts of the world, they don't have to deal with a multitude of, a multitude of perhaps... Some, some are good and some are bad ideas, a multitude of identities, a multitude of, a multitude of beliefs, Different conflicts. A multitude of all the above, including language. Um, and I think by default, even though we sometimes slip in Lebanon, oftentimes we do, uh, we're strong in that sense that we can tolerate a lot of things. And we're able to tolerate some things that maybe a Western audience is not easily able mm -hmm. to digest. And I'm just going to touch on this a bit. You're... you're commentary mm -hmm. and your comedy on the violence of our part of the world mm -hmm. is is so funny thank you and I, I appreciate that you think that <laughs> oh it's so funny and 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 i know for a fact that that's for the wrong reasons sometimes criticized in western audiences yeah now I think Lebanon is the least politically correct place on planet Earth. And I love it. Yeah. It's the most comedically liberating place in the world. Right. Now, can I ask you, how do you approach this subject? And before we started talking, you mentioned a, a, a quite telling experience, your interview on Hard Talk. Yeah, BBC's Hard Talk. BBC Hard Talk, where they ask you a bag of... Uh, uh, a basket of, of bad questions. And then after mm -hmm. the interview, they watch your performance mm -hmm. and they regret some mm -hmm. of the questions, mm -hmm. right? So how do you go about that? That your 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 purpose is comedy. Mm -hmm. You're not you're not supporting. I mean, you, your your message is clear. This is pain relief. Yes. This is not pain yes. for pain's sake. This no, is no, no, pain no. relief. It is 100. percent how, how does that work for you, especially when you're when you do have, oftentimes a non-Lebanese or non-Arab mm -hmm. audience? So how, what is the communication strategy for you to say, look, this is something we are good at. We're, we're laughing at this. We're laughing together. We're not 
shooting ourselves in the foot here. It's a very simple purpose. And this is at the core of my entire belief system. Mm. People derive value in the world we live in today based off of their usefulness. This is just the human condition, mm. okay? Uh, you're really good friends with somebody because they make you happy. Yeah. You fall in love with a woman because she gives you security as a heterosexual male. I'm speaking from my perspective. Uh, you decide to spend the rest of your life with somebody because you believe you can build a home together. Mm. All of these different things, it comes out of a use. It's not a, it's not a negative thing. The human condition is we form the bonds out of usefulness. Even, even your early friendships when you're a kid, you become mm. friends with somebody inexplicably just because you have a good time with them. Mm. You don't mm. become friends with somebody that you hate. Right. And it's a very simple purpose. When, when, the, when Arabs or Lebanese people or Arabs in general are considered useless terrorists, violent people, Neanderthals who will never get along. That's, that's the image we have. Yeah. In my special No Bombing in Beirut, I address it head on by saying we have a PR problem because we've created some of the great, we've done m many of the greatest contributions to humanity. Uh, we have an incredible, incredible culture. We are an incredible, incredible people and nobody sees it. Yeah. That's our fucking problem. Yeah. So all you need to do to get people to want to spend time with you is to be useful. So my comedy, and I think what makes it accessible to Americans, Europeans, Australians, and whatever, yeah. is the perspective is useful from my shows. So it's more the usefulness than, than getting offended. The, the reason they don't get offended is because when I, in other sets that I found, a lot of people say it's too politically correct in America. Hmm. People get offended at jokes that have no purpose. Well, that's interesting. So if you say okay. something just yeah. to say something, right, 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 just to be offensive. It's almost like shock value. It's shock value. So yeah, if yeah, I yeah. say, you know, fuck religion, right? Great. Okay, cool. Big statement. Ha ha. He made a joke. He goes to a church. He farts in a church. This is a joke. Right, right, Some people right. find it funny. Other, people's find, other people find it offensive. Yeah. Um, for me, I'm like, okay, what was the purpose of that joke? Okay. Was there perspective yeah. gained? Right. Or were you just trying to do something funny just to be funny? If you're right. able to make material that gives purpose and perspective, you'll find the political correctness erodes immediately. So if you take a look at my joke, like fighting yeah. ISIS with comedy, yeah. right, which was the main crux in the, um, in the BBC Hard Talk interview. Which I find, by the way, in itself is absurd. Hard Talk trying to challenge a comedian on their material. Honestly, I do want to give them credit, though, which was a beautiful thing. It was such an intellectual challenge. Mm -hmm. It wasn't challenging just to be challenging. Right. It was challenging also to kind of derive the deeper meaning from it. Interesting. Okay. You know, sometimes so, sometimes interviewers will ask you something like, yeah, but you can't say that because just to get your response. Right. Okay. So I do want to say that a lot of people criticize that interviewer, mm -hmm. but I loved what she did. Okay. Okay. Um, and in, in that clip, if you see um, uh, Fighting ISIS with Comedy, it's literally a direct response to the world's question today, which is why should comedians be able to say anything they want? Why is yeah. comedy necessary and is it useful? Right. And should we be more politically correct? So instead of getting caught up in the argument of Republican Democrat yeah. or politics in America, which yeah. is loaded, I decided to bring in a scenario of a reality that we have in Lebanon concerning ISIS and suicide bombing. Everybody can agree suicide bombing is not a laughing matter. If I can take that, pull out the, the lessons from it, create a hilarious set, and at the same time give you lessons from it, then you realize that the value of these Lebanese people isn't the fact that they're Lebanese and they make good food, which is right. very valuable. Right. But it's the fact that they've been through experiences that they can draw lessons out of 
that when I listen to these lessons, I can apply them in my own life. You said the political, politically correct motive erodes quickly. No, the politically correct hurdle. The hurdle. Oh, yes, okay. because the politically correct, what ends up happening is that people get fixated on the words you're saying. Yes. But if you start to drop some real lessons in it, it's no longer about the words, it's about the message. In your experience, though, is that a mostly Western scenario? Well, I mean, the West, the West has the stability to be concerned with things that don't really matter. Interesting. And okay. I think that if America had a war on its hands, the political correctness, there isn't time for that. Right. Is that a bad thing? Am I saying that being politically correct is bad? I actually think it's a good thing. I think that we're I think the fact that we're having an amazing discussion every minute of every day and mm. there's people arguing you shouldn't have said that, you should have said that, you should it's exhausting, it's tiring, and it's outstanding. I love the fact that we can discuss about representation. I love the fact that people say I want more women in movies. And I love the fact that they're doing it sometimes at the expense of the movie itself and they're doing it to get because mistakes need to be made. Things need to happen so that we get to a better place. Has it, I mean, aside from a few, an interview or perhaps certain reactions among certain audience members, yes. do, has it had any impact on the material that you deliver? It's, in some cases, it's had an impact where it's made jokes funnier because <laughs> I've realized I need to explain a certain thing. So I'll create a whole joke in the beginning that I can use as a callback so that when I, when I see people getting hung up on something before I get to the message part, snap them back out of it. By distracting so them. Way, it's yeah. like chess. Yeah, you're taking... You're doing a closing argument. Using trying to, comedy to, in a way, bring feedback to the... My purpose, I'm a world g creator. That's what I think about it. Mm. To be a successful comic, you got to be a world generator. Meaning, people come into your show, they have to forget where they... They need to forget what they believe. Yes. They need to forget their values. Yeah. They, need to, they need to enter your world. Yeah. They need to, it's a tourist visit. Yeah. <laughs> you have to present your world to these people. Right. You yeah. are successful if they, you are able to distract them so much and engross them so much that they become they become a citizen of your world for an hour and a half, two hours. Interesting. So you, you are that is that is what you need to do, step one. Step two is that when you're done and they go back to the real world or their world, yeah. they see it differently. If you do that, I believe that is my purpose. So my, every joke that I tell is crafted so that I can distract somebody so that I can get this point across so that I can load it in something applicable that they experience on an almost daily basis so that they can refer to it again. Yes. It's an ongoing process. But in the background, believing in Lebanon is a consistent thing in your, in your work. And I, I never got the sense that you were abandoning Lebanon. Oh my God. Even, even for comedy's sake. No, no. Of every joke, not. even if it's Sort of like a friend because I don't punch. believe it because I believe Lebanon is the greatest place on earth. Okay, now that and the people that's a very bold statement. Yeah, did you ever ever feel like it was a responsibility to put Lebanon on sort of like a yes to, to project positivity? Yes, okay, so when you were becoming more famous, did you feel not to project positivity to project the reality? Project a reality, but and not, not just of Lebanese culture, but that to the Middle East, yes. And then when yeah. I leave the Middle East, I project the reality of sure. the collective Arab culture. But you never punched down on Lebanon. Never. And I, I think, I think you've always ended every punch with a positive sort of twist. At there the is end. no way you can punch down on Lebanon, right? Okay. Because there's because once again, the good people of Lebanon are the majority. If I'm going to measure Lebanon by the bad people of Lebanon, yes. then I might as well me measure America by the white supremacists. Okay. I might right. as well measure uh, uh, Russia by the uh, KGB assassins. But did it, did it steer your material in any direction? Yes, of course. Okay, so did you feel the need, and I'm just curious about this, that you wanted to make Lebanon front and center of your material 
as your career was expanding? It wasn't a need. It was just it, Lebanon's been the most fascinating thing to me out of everything I've experienced. So it really is your personal story. It is personal my personal story. It's a very genuine, yeah, yeah. On stage. Yeah, and plus it, it's the greatest uh, argument mechanic I've ever seen when you're trying to explain a point to other people to take them to a place they know nothing about. Yes. If I want a Democrat and a Republican to come together, I'll tell them a story about me and my friend Hamoudi in Lebanon. Because it has all the parallels and it has everything between a Christian and a Muslim coming yes. together and all of that. But they don't get caught up in the Hillary-Trump debate. Right. So I just change the character names and they actually listen. You know, I think you're one of the few Lebanese entertainers I can think of, maybe the only one, maybe, who can use the Lebanese context with a non-Lebanese audience and get the message across. Yes. I think your material at your current show... That is something I actually actively like fixate on. I mean, ha let's let's assume that. And to do that, just so you yeah, know, yeah. I do a lot of shows in places where I get paid almost virtually nothing, right? In very rural areas across America, yes. I'll go and Canada, and I'll go to Winnipeg, Canada, where I've yeah. now developed quite a following. And they're not Lebanese. There, there There's aren't no any Lebanese. Arabs there. Not, Forget yeah, Lebanese. Sure. There's no Arabs, and I'm doing shows seven, eight shows over a weekend. And they and and I'm just I'm because I need to make sure that I can get my message across to these people. Not that I have Arabs laughing and getting people into right. the atmosphere. It's something that you've done, which is I mean I've seen I've seen it by by chance. Uh, years ago, I went to the Comedy Cellar, and seeing a New York comic, Godfrey. Forget, <laughs> yeah. forget his last name, Godfrey. It's uh, just he just goes by Godfrey. Godfrey. It's Dan Shimunchi. I can't remember <laughs> the Dan Shimun. Uh, okay, anyways, he's 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 very eccentric and very funny. He's <clears> out, <throat> one of the best yeah. in the game. And he's, I think, he still is at the cellar regularly. I mean, I saw his yeah. name there not too long. All ago. the biggest comics have to keep going to the. You got to keep trying out that material. And it's work. I, Comedy I, is like a martial art. You got to yeah. go to the dojo. You got to practice. You got to hit the punching bag. But Godfrey is clearly not Lebanese, right? Oh, and he, God, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, God, no, he's not. Yeah, yeah. And he comes out from the cellar. I'm leaving. Uh, I guess it's McDougal and Bleaker. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going up. And he notices that he's, he sees that I was at the show and just sort of friendly chat. Yeah, he's very friendly. And one question leads to the other. And suddenly it's like, where are you living? I said, Beirut. And the first thing he said was, Nimr. Now, that to me... He is, also says Nimr. <laughs> Nimr. He Nimr. says it. Yeah, he yeah, yeah. does the whole. <laughs> and to, to be honest, when he first said it, I'm like, "What is he? Oh, Nimr. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And then I said, "You know Nimr." And he's like, "What? Of course I know Nimr." And he was so happy to bring up Lebanon. Yeah. Now you did God that. God bless him. You did that to a comedian in New York. Yeah. And I'm sure. I'm sure everybody that. I mean that he's a professional comedian, and you brought him to Lebanon. Yeah, back in 2000, and I think it was seven or maybe eight. We did the Beirut Stand-Up Comedy Festival. We brought out Godfrey, Pete Corielli, Al Ducharme, and Mike Bataya, who's of Jordanian origin. And I told their agent, I want them to come to Lebanon, but on the condition that they spend a week here right. before the show. And, you, and he was like, sure. <laughs> they wanted to come, so they came out, and we drove them around. We showed them the country. And when they left, they were crying at the airport. This is a gesture from a Lebanese comedian mm -hmm. showing other comics mm -hmm. what Lebanon is Dude, like. Dude, comics speak for a living. I figured if I could bring these comics and show them Lebanon, I've just armed five people with audiences Absolutely. that will tell the story of Lebanon. And chances are it'll be a positive story. Oh, I know it. Yeah. Yeah. Winnipeg or wherever, mm -hmm. they're remembering Lebanon the way you describe it. Exactly. Now. I'm showing them the re the, my, my world of Lebanon, my truth. 
Yes. And maybe, maybe it's a lie. And I hope people say, I think he's lying, so I'm going to go visit and see for myself. Yeah. But as a Lebanese, somebody walking in New York at night, cold, two in the morning, having somebody's face shine when they say Lebanon. Lebanon. Isn't that incredible? It is, it is a good feeling. And without knowing you, yeah. I feel like, yes. Yeah, we didn't know each other at the time. Yeah, and I'm proud, just by default, that he has a good feeling about mm-hmm. Lebanon. I want to push it a step further. The last few months. In terms of... I mean, I know that social media is dominating our lives today. And it would be very weird to kind of go to hard talk to talk about the revolution, right? From a, I mean, today... You don't, you don't need to do that because you can literally talk about it on your phone yeah. to an audience that is as wide as you can imagine. Yeah, as, as wide as they want it to be. As wide, if they yeah. carry my message, then so be it. If they don't, then so be it. Exactly. And three and a half, four months ago, I guess it's almost four months ago when October 17 began. Yeah. We were having a friendly chat over WhatsApp, trying to find a time to meet. We were going to, yeah, I, you wanted to interview me and I wanted to interview you because I find you right. fascinating. And we actually, For my podcast, I had my, my podcast at the same time. Stay tuned. Yeah. I put all of that on hold until after the revolution. But when I bring it back, you're going to be my first guest. I've never had a guest on my podcast. I wanted you to be the first. Oh, first and last. <laughs> no, no. I want to set the tone if, with you. If the numbers go down, no, you know they blame. won't. I want to okay. set the tone with you. A lot of people need to know about you. We, we were exchanging funny messages because you were you're at the airport with your luggage trying to get to Edma. With burning tires, roadblocks, <laughs> and we're like, what a great day! But the Lebanese, what a great day! I mean, this is the Lebanese October seventeenth. Oh, we were trying to, we were trying to hook up the podcast still, and then we both realized at the end of the day, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it wasn't going to happen, and, and, and was, I was traveling, and yeah. there was a lot of stuff going on. And it took about maybe three hours to get. To yes, yeah, but we so were very. Yeah, we it took trying. more than three. It took what? me. I walked yeah. from the airport almost all the way to Adma. I think that spirit and the to fit. then to pick up my bags and then yeah. go right back to the airport because I had to travel <laughs> right yeah right you were in and out for yeah, like, yeah, yeah for like a day but you know those moments and these were private messages but they're they're really telling of just how we're so used to the absurd as yes. Lebanese yes. that comedy feeds into the story oh by God. default you were sharing these clips on Instagram and you're using social media in a way that is very effective yes now I did not really, I mean, we were talking to each other, so I, I guess I maybe have, maybe I was following you more than I would have, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, you were on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, so I, I kind of knew yeah. what you were doing already. But then it became everyone knew what you were doing. Yeah, and because I, of the photo? Yes. Yeah. And I, I mean... My core fans were not surprised in the least. Right. Um, but there were, there were people, people, but there were a lot of people who were like, Oh, this guy actually really cares. Exactly. They and thought it was an act. And, and it wasn't diaspora. Lebanese and Lebanon were, were re- they realized now. I mean, that yeah. was a moment for me to show my true colors. Absolutely. I rescheduled my tour. I, yes. I made a promise to the Lebanese people that I'd be back to take care of the initiative. Right. I came, I delivered and I continue to work on it. You were very vocal in what you thought was necessary yes. early on. Because I think, on. and still think that the solution to Lebanon, both economically and spiritually is very easy. Yeah. And I think if we had the right leadership in power, Lebanon would thrive within a matter of a month or two. But can I ask you, the, the tools that you're using, so social 
social media mm-hmm. and, and also in Instagram in particular, I think. You're, Instagram you're, and Facebook. And Facebook. The Facebook was the diaspora and the Instagram was for the locals. That's interesting. Okay. That's, so that's what I've noticed. A uh, lot of diaspora still use Facebook. Facebook mm-hmm. is uncool. But where people <laughs> have family members, Facebook is the primary thing. Okay. So the Lebanese diaspora is really located on Facebook. Right. And the Lebanese, Lebanese and a good section of diaspora is also located on Instagram. You very quickly, and I, I think this is quite quite astonishing, a few weeks pa- uh, after the revolution starts, and you've set up a platform mm-hmm. very quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess you did this mostly on your own. No. No. Let me let me be very honest about what's, what's beautiful about the initiative. Mm. It's not that Nimit made it, because it's not my initiative. The initiative is a result of my ability to know what the Lebanese people want and formulate it into a cohesive plan. The construction of the website, the questions that are on the website, mm. The intricacies of it was the result of conversations with so many incredible Lebanese people. Mm. The programming of the website was the result of specific Lebanese volunteers from abroad and within the country who sat down and did the work. Okay. I don't know how to code. Right. They put the website together that a company that I first reached out to to see if I could get them to volunteer or maybe I'd pay at a reduced rate said it can't be done for less than four months. We're able to pull it off in a week. What's incredible about the initiative is it's a testament to the power, the untapped potential of Lebanese people when they work together on a common goal. The leader, that's why I keep saying that we have unfit leadership because if we had good leadership that was able to specify very hyper-focused goals Mm -hmm. for the Lebanese people and have the charisma and the inspiration to bring the Lebanese people together behind this goal, we could change the goddamn world if we wanted to in a matter of days. So you basically offered basic direction just to I just of- kept the I just kept everyone on path. I was a yeah. highly effective leader, but no leader can do anything without soldiers. Yes. And I would describe them nothing less as so I had lawyers yeah. who were we and I set it up using WhatsApp groups. And I had lawyers that were basically putting together all of the the questions going through, you know, even fundamental philosophical questions as to, okay, if we make the initiative, how exactly can we empower people so that we make sure that if we find the right person, we can take them to the, across the finish line. Right. And yeah. how can we make it so that people don't think we're taking sides? Yeah. Th- those were questions. Even coming up with the questions to make the initiative so powerful but and bulletproof. taking sides in the sense that you were supporting the revolution, but uh, not, Definitely, but yeah, not taking but not, sides like I'm saying, this should be the person sure, we elect. Sure, sure, sure. And yeah. the best way to do that is yeah. to say, well, I don't choose who gets on the initiative. Mm-hmm. You do. So it's up to the candidate to first prove to the Lebanese people and earn their vote to get on the initiative. Then it's up to the candidate to survive the interview that I give them. Then we don't recommend anyone. So the initiative never comes and says, we believe these should be our leaders. It is is faith in the Lebanese people's ability to judge correctly through the power of their vote. And that faith dictates that the Lebanese people should be afforded the opportunity to make a fucking mistake. Yeah. We have all these leaders who are like, no, we must do this because if we don't do it, then this stop deciding no, I know what's good for the Lebanese people. Let them make their own mistakes, yeah. have their own victories. I, I think of it as a mirror reflection of the protests online. That it's, it is. It's leaderless. It is. It's positive. It is. And it's demanding fundamental change. And it's all through a guise of democracy and faith in one another. Right. Now, I know it's young Mm-hmm. And I know that the revo- I know that the protests are ongoing. Yes, and that things take time. Yes, they ebb and they flow. Yeah, but just want your own personal feelings at this point, right mm-hmm. now. We're three and a half, four months 
away yeah. from that initial euphoria. Yes, sir. And I've had dozens of conversations trying to gauge the... I mean, I, I don't want to say neither positive nor negative, just mm-hmm. the momentum. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think mm-hmm. there's a universal agreement at mm-hmm. this point that the momentum is waning. Oh, yeah, of course. Right. And not just because of numbers diminishing mm-hmm. and not just because it's raining mm-hmm. <laughs> and people are mm-hmm. less inclined and not just because there has been forms of violence on the streets. The patience of any population is tested when it comes to revolt and, rev- and yeah, revolution. Yeah. and Especially when you have a government that has so many tools. Yes. Like capital controls and bringing the people to their knees in the sure. only way, which is cutting off liquidity. And the financial pain is, is enormous now. And it's, on, it's done, it's by design, it's on purpose. As a finance man, I can tell you, as a guy who predicted the financial collapse of Lebanon uh, over a year and a half ago, who begged his father to move all of his money to a, accounts abroad, as a man who shut down his accounts knowing this was coming long before the revolution, way back in May when it was hard to find U.S. dollars in Lebanon, May of 2019, um, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, this is by design, and there is no reason for these capital controls now, and the uh, way that it's being done right now is sheer theft, and it is the government using tools at its disposal, and it is pure evil, and I cannot wait for the day of reckoning because of this, and okay. it's coming. So this this will be a perfect way to for me to ask that your initiative, the not your initiative, the initiative, the initiative. That, that you helped, that I launched, that you launched, and you're now just sort of. It began as Nimmer's initiative. It is now Lebanon's initiative, and that was the goal. This initiative mm-hmm. that is for everyone. Yes, sir. Right? Are you betting that over time mm-hmm. something like this will? serve its purpose mm-hmm. and do you have any skepticism mm-hmm. over the way Lebanon is moving now that genuine ideas uh, goodwill gestures from anyone whether it's yourself or anyone that's trying mm-hmm. on the streets mm-hmm. online mm-hmm. sometimes politically mm-hmm. sometimes other ways that we may not get there I have zero skepticism Okay, now, that's very sort of bold statement. Why? Why are you First adamant? of all, I'm an authority at knowing your audience. Hmm. I actually would say I'm, I know Lebanese people better than anybody has ever known Lebanese people. Ooh. I've made a career out of it. Oh, so so it, it's, your, it's your performances, in a way, that's helping you gauge... I'm the, the only artist who can put 7,000 Lebanese people in one place in one night. And I can charge money for them to do it. No politician in Lebanon can achieve the numbers I do and make people pay for it. (laughs) And the reason that I do that, it comes from something that Bill Higgs said, one of the great stand-up comics of all time. He said, religious people and politicians, they beg people to see them and support them for free. Comedians, people pay money, but they do not pay money to see the comedian. They give you the comedian money and they say, make me listen. You are being paid to give people a reason to be there. So when I do my comedy shows and I'm joining Lebanese people of all religious backgrounds, all political leanings, all in one place, clearly I have my finger on something much more than anybody else does. If I was a politician and I had the same approach to my politics as I did comedy, I would be ruling the country. (laughs) 
Not because I am incredible, <laughs> not because I am incredible, but because the competition is so weak. Why do I have zero skepticism about the Lebanese people? We've been able to do, we did in the first 60, 30 days, in the first two weeks of protest, we achieved more for the country of Lebanon and the spirit of Lebanon, the nation of Lebanon, than generations have been able to. Now, I share, I share a bit of that sentiment. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would be able to go all the way of, I mean, definitely a citizenry was born that, that, is, that never existed. That never existed, and that's a big accomplishment. That's a huge accomplishment. I'm going to just... I would argue that that's the, supposed to be the fundamental accomplishment of a young nation. Yes. That it took us so many years to do. We should have had that in the very beginning. We never did. Now, that would be the other side of what I... I mean, I would put both in the same, sent, same sentence, that yes, sir. we did it, mm -hmm. and it might be too late. I'm oh, just, that's definitely a good debate to have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it might be too late. However... How could it be too late? Hmm. Hmm. People, there are people trapped in Lebanon. They don't have a citizenship that can get them to travel elsewhere. Hmm. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. So it's not too late. Interesting. If they had the option to go anywhere, a lot of people would be like, sure, you defined a nation, but I'm just going to go and make some money right now. So you have faith in the fact that there's still... I have faith in the fact that people... People that are still... People have to be there, and yeah. I fight for those people. Yes. Because they gave me everything I have. So... Why, who do I have faith in? If you ask me, who do I have faith in? I have faith in my generation, man. And everybody, and the younger generation that's even better than my generation. These are people who are sick and tired. Yes, the momentum from the revolution is gone. It's being replaced with a different momentum, a more dangerous momentum. And I'm happy that nobody's picking up on it because it's our biggest weapon. It's being replaced with fury and rage, yeah. a yeah. festering yeah. rage that will translate into votes in the next election. You think that the long-term process includes a an evolution of this leaderless revolt Dude, to, Lebanon, to, the, to the traditional politics that we Lebanon has always been about short-term bursts. And we've never changed anything with short-term bursts. The fact that the revolution went from what people thought was just going to be a short-term burst to the longest protest we've ever seen sustained by yes. a majority of people. It's true. Yeah. To a, true. to a constant kind of thing in and of itself is a victory that nobody's even measuring. In, in hindsight, my words will be cited by historians in their words as the great victories that made all other victories possible. Okay. Yeah. But I'm able to recognize that because I can see the difference because I'm very much in tune with everyone. I like that your comedy translates across across every division in Lebanon. It there, does. Yeah, there's no, I mean. Because there are no divisions in Lebanon. Everybody's told me that people in Lebanon are divided. They're not divided. Look, Lebanon is not ta'ifi. It's not secular. Lebanon is maslahji. <laughs> and I'm a business student. I'm telling you right now. I could take the most extreme Shiite Muslim who hates Sunni Muslims, but bring in a Sunni Muslim with a business opportunity and magically they will find a way to work together. Lebanon is about opportunity and it's about your opportunity and it's about doing what's good for you. It's been to our detriment in the past where it was believed that to get success, you couldn't trust anybody besides your specific religion. Here's the thing, um, Lebanon, everybody's eating shit equally. If right now Iran had money to fund Hezbollah with, we'd be fucked. Because then the Shiites would be like, look, I'm not going to be broke with everybody. Because Lebanon is maslahji. You can't undo maslaha without getting to a point where people realize that you can make more money when everybody's winning. 
I blame the politicians yeah. that preceded this moment. Yes. I blame their sheer stupidity okay. yeah. on where we are today. Yeah. The reason we are able to revo re revolt so effectively right now yeah. is because of how stupid they are. All they had to do was keep stealing, yeah. but at the same time, be business savvy. Say to themselves, you know, if I increase the GDP of this country and I'm stealing 70% of the gross domestic product, mm -hmm. If I can keep stealing 70%, but increase the gross domestic product, then I make more money. Yeah. How can I increase the gross domestic product? I'll just give them electricity, better roads, and internet. You mean to tell me that the Lebanese people, if they had super fast internet that was subsidized and cheap, phones that were subsidized and cheap, much less traffic, and electricity 24 hours a day, wouldn't be more concerned with what's happening with TV series than they would with what be going on with the internal politics or going out and partying. Yeah. The Lebanese people were already divided. It was very easy for you to exploit that division and keep it funding you and your children and your family and your nepotism for generations to come. Luckily, they're stupid. So what would have taken 50 and 60 years and multiple generations to achieve, which is the one-time opportunity where we can show that uniting and defining a country not by its sects, but by its overall definition, makes more money and more opportunity and more happiness for everybody in the country, that opportunity would have come a lot later. It's now presented itself now, and we must rise to the occasion, and we are. Will this revolution fail? No, it's already succeeded. It's over. We're right now, we're a peaceful people. Whether we want to get violent in the protests or not, we're not going to take guns and walk into politicians and murder them because it doesn't achieve anything, especially when they're almost fucking dead by themselves. Michel Aron's almost gone. Nabi Abid is almost gone. And they owe us a favor to share with us their diets and their regimens so we see how the fuck they can live this long and not die yet. And I'm not saying I want people to die before somebody comes and says he wants Michel Aron to die. I don't want them to die. I want them to get away so that we can usher in a new generation. If we have to wait for them to die, it sucks that they didn't recognize the revolution as the greatest moment and opportunity to rewrite history, to say we support you and we call for a reformed election, an early election, and to capitalize on the momentum. I do give credit to Saad al-Hariri for saying one sentence that I would like to think maybe he took from one of my viral speeches, because I said it, which was Lebanon is sitting on top of one of the greatest economic opportunities of all time and when he resigned, and if we take advantage of it now, we can turn everything around. Every day that a reformed law and an early election is not put into power is a day where it makes more work for people like myself and Lebanese citizens, the heroes in the streets, yeah. have to do more work to get the momentum back from the diaspora who would have flocked to the country in their droves to take part in a brand new democracy, invested money in the country, empowered people who would have done real economic measures to encourage sales of Lebanese products abroad, tax subsidizations within the country, leveled the playing fields in meaningful ways, legalized marijuana to increase a product, a gross domestic product of the country and bring in a revenue source immediately, stopped believing in the fantasy of oil as a solution to the country because it is a fantasy because until the drilling is complete and then the 12-year period of the company that is going to take most of the profits for the drilling is complete, we're not going to see enough of it even if that means they might even drill and find out it's not economically feasible to do it. It's, true. it's, it's true. not a real yeah. solution. Yeah. The real solution isn't quick fixes. The real solution is to sit down, privileged people like myself to do everything they can to help the unprivileged people who are doing the real heavy lifting in Lebanon on the streets to take Lebanon to a better place. The initiative is about identifying new representatives for this next phase of Lebanon. It's not enough to be honest. It's not enough to be good. You have to be effective. So you need a mix of many things. We identify those people, 
We inspire the diaspora by keeping it accessible to them through subtitles or the English language so that when the time comes to vote, their fury, our fury, and our disgust with the situation unites us so we have a great Lebanese revolution at the voting booth. And we constitutionally and we, um, we through a democratic process, put the right people in power who then proceed to change the constitution to make sure that in the future, instead of us electing the same people as the way things are, us electing qualified people as the way things are. And then in the next 10 years, 10 years from now, that's all it takes. Lebanon is ours and it never goes back. Just like Milham Khalaf, when we empowered him, within a few weeks, the work he's done in the, juris in the, in the legal jurisdiction, uh, the legal, what's the word I'm looking for? In the legislative, there we go, in the legislative field with legal scholars and judges and everything has been insane. Imagine if we had 20 of them. In the, and imagine if him was her and we had women in power and empowered side by side by men changing everything. Lebanese women, indestructible. Lebanese women and men united, indestructible. Lebanese women leading men, unbelievable. You represent a few things to me. You represent the, the talents of any Lebanese artist and they shine at home and they shine abroad. Mm -hmm. You represent to me the Ras Beirut uh, crowd that I associate myself with all the time whether it's in Ras Beirut, whether it's in New York or anywhere. And, my, 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 and I got that attitude because my parents, my dad's from Tripoli and my mom is from Ras Beirut. So it's a, it's, I'm like that because I have the best of both worlds. I'm stuck with the same stuff. Yeah. Tripoli and Ras you, Beirut. You too, same exactly. Maybe it's that, a blessing to know the blessing. people of Tripoli and it's a blessing to know the people of Ras Beirut and everyone in between in Kisirwin. I lived in Adma. You also represent to me this sort of dance between not it's not just two identities it's maybe a thousand different identities that you're able to fit in to a winnipeg audience you can fit into a new york yeah. very difficult perhaps uh, uh cutthroat environment and and succeed for comedy yeah for comedy yeah you can uh, go to san diego yeah. and you can go back to beirut you can go to qatar and ogden utah and saudi arabia and australia and i mean sometimes i look at your schedule and it's the funniest schedule like right <laughs> I mean, what is this guy talking it about? Really like, yeah, it really is a world tour. If you think about it, like, it really is. It's almost like, you know, Montreal and then Mumbai. Could yeah, be yeah, on yeah, the same, yeah, like, yeah, day, yeah. You know, back to back. Yeah. You also represent, to me, this flicker of sadness that you're overcoming. And I think, I think it all goes back to this you, trying to not repeat what our parents went through, mm -hmm. which is forced emigration. Mm-hmm. And only yearning to go back. They go back to a country that did not give them what they wanted. Yeah. They go back to a country that is still stunted. And How and ridiculous is it that as Lebanese people, we have to leave the country yeah. to be able to get the stability, to be able to come back and see our parents? Absolutely. Get the fuck out. We yeah. can do better than that. We deserve better. Sure. I completely agree. And you know what? In many different ways, comedy has that power to bring a huge diverse crowd together yeah i mean it's it's hard to imagine any other outlet where people from fundamental different backgrounds or different political views can share 
a moment together yes. and enjoy it together. Mm-hmm. Potentially become friends after because they saw someone like you on stage. If you laugh together, yeah. here's the thing. You tell me I'm able to fit into all the different environments because I know uh, one unquestionable truth that nobody talks about. We're all the same. We're all the same. From whichever country you go to, everybody wants to be happy. You put any human being with whatever background they have, they just kind of want to have a good time. Yeah. And when you realize that's the fundamental truth, then you realize that the only thing that differentiates us is how we go about it. Some people choose extremism, thinking that extremism and religious extremism is what creates a better society to get them happy. And some people go out through complete openness yeah. and progressive values. And other people, it's just the approaches that change. But at the, at the very heart of it all, every human being wants to love and be loved. And although love isn't the answer, it is at the end the destination. So what you do want to understand about people is that it's not difficult to relate to everybody if you consider yourself a human being. It becomes difficult to relate to everybody if you consider yourself a specific type of human being. So I don't consider myself a child of Lebanon. I kind of consider myself a child of this world. And the reason I do that is because I'm Lebanese. To be Lebanese means not to be confined by a geographical boundary or a linguistic boundary. To be Lebanese means to be confined by your contribution and your legacy that you leave in this world. And that's it. And yes, I'm an artist, but even our scientists are artists. Even our mathematicians are artists. And, and, that's, what, and that's what we're proud of. That is a perfect universal message for Lebanon. And I want to thank you for doing this in New York just after two shows Dude, last night. Thanks for having night. me in your house. Man. And I, I know you're traveling soon. And I know you have a, a book. And you're going to Australia later this year as well. I'm going, yeah. yeah. Shout out to Australia. Get your tickets. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be in Montreal at some point as well. I'm going to be, so this Friday... February 14th, Valentine's Day, I'm Valentine's in Toronto. Day, yeah. February 15th, I'm going to be in... I think you're going to release this podcast when, when I'm doing the shows, This right? is a Valentine's Day Valentine's Day podcast. Episode, I'll yeah. be on stage in Toronto and then the next yeah. day in Montreal and then Vancouver and then... Um, oh, my goodness. Denver. And then um, a bunch of shows that I haven't announced yet. Hmm. And then the ones that I have announced, there's going to be uh, Sydney and Melbourne in September. But we also are going to be doing... There's so many dates. I got still Paris, London... Um, and oh my God, I could go on San Diego, Michigan. There's, I could go on and on. There's about 30 different cities still, no, 20 different cities still in the US that I need to hit up. Wow. And uh, so it looks like the future is now is going to be running while the new show actually runs concurrently with it in the other state. So it's going to be, this is the second time. The future is now started running with Love Isn't the Answer. And oh, I, I think my next special, which I'm not going to say the name of yet, but it, 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 uh, it references something to do with Rage Against the Machine, is going to, uh, <laughs> okay. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. It's going to run concurrently with the futures now. Your love for Lebanon is infectious. I'm going How to you share your. I'm going, I'm going to share your schedule, the initiative, and all the things that people need to see. So share the initiative first. Sure. It's initiativelb.com. Go and check it out. And for everybody who might think that initiative, you know, isn't going to work out or whatever, that's great. Sit back, buckle up. <laughs> I got this. We're going to take it past the finish line. It takes a lot of work, and goalposts shift. And objectives and timelines are changing constantly because we have to react to situations that are happening. Yeah. But uh, just based off of the people involved, I can't wait for everybody to see how incredible it's going to be. And it's not always going to be about me. Once the success is clear and it's reached its maximum potential, I will be leaving the initiative and opening it for voting to have a new speaker. Because I want to show the Lebanese people that you can build something for your country and you don't have to be stuck in it 
like every freaking politician yeah, to make it effective. You know, and I'm, I'm glad you said 10 years. You're giving it 10 years. I'm giving the initiative to succeed clearly. Yeah. I'm giving it till the next election cycle. Oh, okay. But so I'm giving 10 years for our victory over this mentality of disgust that has ruined Lebanon to be eradicated completely. You know what? 2030. Mm-hmm. We're going to do an episode. We'll do, I'll be back. Yeah. We'll, oh, yeah. We'll be older. We'll be older, we'll be less wise, and more Definitely dumber. <laughs> and probably, you know, spend 30 We'll be minutes. talking about our kids. Yeah, kids, yeah. Little shit came up to me and said, <laughs> I ran a revolution. This yeah, little yeah. shit is like, I can play Fortnite there 15. <laughs> Anyone listening, check out Nimmer's shows. Nimmer, thank, thank you. Thank so you so much for having me, man. tour schedule, his social media portals, and the initiative. All information can be found in the details box of this episode. And a friendly reminder to help contribute to the Beirut Banyan via Patreon or PayPal. The links are in the details box. And of course, happy Valentine's Day. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>